This is Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, and this is episode 13 of season two. On this episode, I kick up the dust with retired Louisville Metro PD Sergeant John Mattingly. Hey everyone, I'm Anthony Weaver, and on the Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, I give cops a seat at the table to tell their stories in their own words and promote the calling of the law enforcement profession. On this episode, I will be talking to retired Louisville Metro PD Sergeant John Mattingly about his life, his career, and his involvement in the tragic Breonna Taylor raid. At the end of the episode, I'll present a brand new Q the Dip standout who recently stopped an active shooter at the Dallas Love Field Airport, and I also have the So Woke It's Broke segment where I'll highlight the rise of activism in law enforcement. Before all that, a quick word about our sponsors. Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, is sponsored by Iron Shirt Barbecue Company. Iron Shirt Barbecue is a barbecue caterer that is family-owned by Glenn and Kendra Stoltzfus, and Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, can get you a 10% discount off your first order with them. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company is a barbecue caterer focused on serving fresh, handcrafted barbecue and sides from their home to your event. Glenn has been honing his craft for 15 years and excels at the art of smoking ribs, brisket, and pork to perfection before he cuts, pulls, or slices it fresh at your event. Kendra makes all the sides from scratch, including mac and cheese, baked beans, and creamy coleslaw to perfectly complement the ribs, brisket, and pork that Glenn has been smoking for hours before your event. I've had the absolute pleasure of having barbecue prepared by Iron Shirt Barbecue. Hands down, it is the best barbecue I've ever eaten, so that's how I can confidently say that when Iron Shirt Barbecue caters your next event, you will not be disappointed. Book them for your wedding, family reunion, graduation, birthday party, or simple cookout. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company on Facebook and Instagram to see their menu, photos of their amazing food, and contact information for booking. Iron Shirt Barbecue needs to be the caterer for your next event. Absolutely needs to be. And if you mention that you heard about Iron Shirt Barbecue on the Diakonos at Cops Calling podcast, you will get a 10% discount on your order. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue right now on Facebook and Instagram to learn more and get booking information. Then mention you heard them on Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, and you will get a 10% discount on your order. Diakonos, a Cops Calling, is supported by the Lancaster Patriot. The Lancaster Patriot is a conservative newspaper serving Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and beyond. If you are tired of liberal bias in your local newspaper, then you need to switch to the Lancaster Patriot right now. The Lancaster Patriot is not ashamed to stand on biblical truth and defend traditional values. Their newspaper includes local stories from Lancaster County, local sports, state, national, and international stories. They even have faith and perspective sections that apply the scripture to our culture. This is not a newspaper that will win any liberal or woke awards, but it will bring you the news free from corporate agendas and government talking points. Subscribe to the Lancaster Patriot today and get a real print newspaper delivered right to your door every single week. I am a proud subscriber of the Lancaster Patriot, and you can join me. As a fan of Diakonasa Cops Calling, you can get a discounted subscription right now. Use promo code Diakonas, that's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S, and receive $15 off your first year's subscription. Sign up online at thelancasterpatriot.com or call 717 370 7508. Again, enter code Diakonos and save $15 on your first year subscription to local, honest, and conservative news. Visit www 
www.thelikestrapatriot.com for more information or call them at 717-370-7508. Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, is a proud affiliate of Audible. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial when you go to audibletrial.com backslash ACC. I have an Audible membership, and it is my absolute favorite way to take in a book. We also use it as a family on long trips to listen to books with the kids, and I personally use it a lot when I am driving, doing yard work, or have some downtime. On this episode, you are going to hear my conversation with retired Sergeant John Mattingly. His book, 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Breonna Taylor raid, is available on Audible right now, and I highly recommend it. In addition, Audible offers thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, including this one, plus much more. As an affiliate, Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, gets a commission for each newly generated trial through the link provided. You can get a free 30-day trial right now. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash ACC. This link will also be included in the podcast episode description and can also be found on the podcast website at diakonosacc.com. My guest on this episode is retired Louisville Metro PD Sergeant John Mattingly. John retired as a decorated 21-year veteran of that police department. His experience is vast, having served in patrol and units within the department that focused on violent crime and drug trafficking. In March 2020, he was involved in the search warrant of Breonna Taylor's residence that had tragic results. He was shot by a suspect, gravely injured, and nearly died. During the exchange of gunfire with the suspect, Breonna Taylor tragically lost her life. John and the other officers with him have been demonized and labeled as racist ever since. For this episode, I'm giving him a seat at my podcast table so that we can get a clearer picture of who he is and uh, truth about this incident. John, absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on and joining me. Hey, Anthony. Glad to be here, man. Yeah. First of all, hey, congratulations on your book, 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Breonna Taylor raid. Uh, I've promoted it here on the podcast uh, because because I I believe it's a it's a must read um, if if you want to get a clearer, uh, truthful picture of of who you are as a person and what really happened during that raid. Um, interestingly enough, um, you know this conversation is happening uh, by coincidence. Actually, is happening uh, while the search warrant and that death of Breonna Taylor has been in the news once again. Uh, earlier this month, the DOG charged uh, four officers that were involved in this investigation, um, and and I for sure want to speak to you about that here um, towards the end of end of the episode. Before I get into all that, though, I I always like when I when I have these guests on, um, and and especially important for you to just kind of talk about your background and and where you grew up, how you grew up, and what experiences you had um, while while you grew up. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I was actually raised in a pastor's home. Uh, our church was in the inner city, and we lived in the inner city. We we're very poor. Uh, there was no TV evangelist type, you know, extravagant lifestyle that we had. We uh, week to week, mouth to mouth, you know, just trying to survive. And uh, the part of town we lived in was just super poor. Um, the people did struggled. I saw the violence on the streets. I saw the the agony of people just trying to make it. Uh, very mixed culture, so I had a lot of experience with people growing up that that others just don't have that opportunity to have, and I think it really benefited me later on, especially on the police department, because I was able to relate. I was able to to talk the language um, of the people in the inner city, unlike you know some officers that 
that grow up and go to private school, go to college, graduate, come back and, and start the police department. And then they're thrown into this culture shock. Um, but fortunately for me, I had that, that foundation. Um, and not only the foundation of, of being in the inner city, but then the foundation of having faith in my life. And I think that gave me an advantage uh, for my career. It, it just helped me along the way. Yeah. And can you, can you say, um, did you grow up in Louisville then? I did my entire life up until two years ago when this event happened. And uh, and just as a side note, how am I doing saying Louisville? Am I saying it correctly? Because I know a lot. Yeah, of you're doing good. It's Louisville, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's actually probably supposed to be pronounced Louisville because we're named after King Louis from France. But okay, uh, Louisville is the way it is. Okay, so just interesting. So you you grew up in an environment where you were you know rubbing shoulders with a lot of different type of people, uh, both in the community where you lived? And then was the church also like that, that you grew up in, that your dad pastored? Yeah, it was right there in the inner city. And he took a church that was, uh, it was dying. Uh, it had about 60 people when he went there. And by the time he, he retired, it had 12, 1300 people a week coming to it. And they were coming from all over the different zip codes around the county and city. And people begged him for years, hey man, you've got a huge you know church here that's successful. Why don't you move it out to the suburbs? And he said, that's not my calling. You know, God wants me here. He wants me to reach the inner city. We had bus routes that went out and, and brought uh, the people in every week. And, and it was just, uh, it was a good experience growing up. Now, growing up in that environment um, where you did in Louisville, did you have interactions with the police? And, and if you did, what, what were they like for you? Well, most of my interactions were third party. You know, I would see things happen, see the police show up, saw how they handled things. There was a couple of times I'd play basketball after church and it'd be late at night and I'd be going home and get pulled over and, you know, not harassed as people say, but, you know, the police just doing their job, seeing who's out running around that time of night. Um, but, you know, nothing real negative, um, at least not enough to, you know, put me off to not wanting to be a cop. But I always looked at it and thought, man, that's what I want to do if I can make some type of difference, if I could help one person. Uh, who can't help themselves, because that was the main thing I saw there, the, the underprivileged kids getting taken advantage of by the drug dealers, uh, the older people just getting uh, harassed and, and scared for, you know, most of the time just walking the streets. And that always just put a fire in my belly that made me say, you know, I want to do something to help them. Okay. And would you say that that was the main drive then before for you to get into law enforcement? Or was there a specific event or something that you were a part of that, that kind of pushed you over the edge or, or made you want to do that? No, I think it was a culmination. You know, as kids, we always play cops and robbers or cowboys and Indian, and I always wanted to either be military fire or, or police. And uh, the police is the one that just kind of stuck out the most. And um, I admired it. And, you know, I guess I thought it was cool growing up. So uh, seeing that along with all the different events and the, and the tragedies of the community just made me want to do it. And you also said when you were talking about growing up and, and seeing some of the things you saw going on in the neighborhood, the advantage, uh, you know, the, the drug dealers taking advantage of people in the community, was that kind of something that really drove you? Because you did a lot of drug work in your career, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a little bit. But um, did that really drive that, uh, that um, desire in you to get after the drug dealers and the drug trafficking that was going on in Louisville? Yeah, that was a huge factor because I saw the violence that came from that, that, that torment of the community. I saw the young kids who, who 
their houses didn't even have running water or electricity because they were so poor yet these guys would take them in and and have them deliver their drugs and do different things and give them Jordans and put a few hundred bucks in their pocket. And then they had these guys captivated and controlled. And I saw that and it just made me so angry for some reason. I have no idea why. It's just something that rubbed me wrong. I couldn't stand it. I saw the, the, the mental abuse aspect of it where they just controlled these guys. And I just didn't like it. I saw the way they treated their women and nothing about that culture uh, looked inviting to me. Matter of fact, it turned me off and I wanted to, you know, try to do something about it. Right. Well, I think that speaks to the calling. I think it's interesting when you say you don't know why. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, if we believe that we're, we're called to certain professions and I, I sincerely believe that in law enforcement, you know, I think God instilled that desire in you to, you know, that justice desire in you. So I think it's kind of cool that, that you went ahead then and got into the career of law enforcement. And when you got in, you know, growing up in the environment that you, you grew up in, I'm sure you had seen a whole lot more than some of the other people you were coming on the job with. You had experienced a whole lot more than some of the other officers you came on the job with. But how was that when you, when you got on the job and started doing patrol? How were your eyes open to uh, just the level of crime and violence? And can you just talk about what what that was like for you? Yeah, I mean, I did have a, a you know a great advantage over some of the guys, not all of them, because some of them grew up in even worse environments than I did and didn't have the uh, advantage of great parents that I had. But yeah, I remember one specific thing. I was riding through the projects one night. It was about two thirty three in the morning, hot out. Uh, a lot of these people didn't have air conditioners, so they'd hang out outside and play cards or do whatever. But projects were always hopping. And I remember the first time I saw a little two, three-year-old kid um, walking through the projects this time of night by himself with a diaper, only had a diaper on. And that thing was so full and sagging down to about his knees. And I thought to myself at that point, I thought, man, these kids don't have a chance. I see why there's uh, such a repetition and uh, a cycle that that continues because these kids are just thrown to the wolves and then it becomes survival of the fittest. So part of me understood why some of them turned to drugs or some, you know, turned to criminal activity because the environment's just horrible. But then even that, even on top of that, I saw violence. Um, but growing up in the, you know, seventies, eighties, and, um, you saw more fist fights and, uh, people hitting each other with bottles or bricks or crazy stuff. But then uh, my career, when I got into different parts of town, I suddenly saw the violence wasn't just fist. I mean, it was the first thing they returned to was shooting each other. And that was something different. Even though when I lived in Portland and I lived there for uh, two years, even after I was a police officer in the West, in the, the urban town. And I remember there was a shooting right across the street from me before I became a cop. And as soon as I pulled up from work, I heard a gunshot. The guy was shot in the head across the street. Police showed up. So that was the closest I had been to actual violence, even though I'd rolled up on stuff or seen it. But then as a police officer, you're dealing with that day in and day out. And my second day on the department, my first run out of the on the street was a dead person. But that was natural causes. My second day was in the projects, a subject shot in the head. And I remember I can still remember the smell of the the iron and the gunpowder in the air. Uh, It's like popcorn. You know, you can't describe it other than that. And it doesn't go away. And so, yeah, there was still, I, even though I'd experienced a lot growing up, there was a lot more once that curtain was pulled back that I was still amazed by. Yeah. 
for sure. Um, and that second day on the job, when you when you had that call, uh, what were you thinking as a as a two year or a two day officer? What were you thinking when you got to that to that call? Well, I don't mean to sound sadistic, but you know, I thought, man, it's kind of cool. I mean, this is what I signed up for. Um, not that the guy was dead, but that when I walked in, I, I still remember he had the death gurgle still going on, laid back in a recliner. Um, and then somebody, they tried to say he committed suicide, but then we found the gun like a block away in a trash can. So kind of threw that, that theory out the window. But the amazing part was there were so many people that saw or experienced the tragedy that had taken place, yet nobody would talk to the police. And that, that part blew my mind because I still thought with human nature that when someone's life is taken, at least somebody would whisper in your ear, Hey, I think it was this guy over here or, or whatever, but that wasn't the case. You know, there's a different code on the streets um, that's just adhered to so deeply that they don't want to talk to the police. You're the enemy, no matter, even when they need you and you help them two seconds later, once they're helped, you're the enemy again. And once you can accept that and understand, you know, it's not really personal. They just hate the badge. Um, then it makes life a little bit easier. But man, it was, it was exhilarating, shocking. Uh, I looked forward to doing it again. And again, that sounds horrible, but the adrenaline that you got from that, I mean, it's almost like a junkie, you know, you just keep going back for more and more because, you know, people watch TV and they think police works 24 seven, go, go, go. But as you know, it's probably 90% boredom, 10% adrenaline rush. And it's right. that little bit of adrenaline rush that just keeps you coming back for more. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I can, I can completely relate to that. Uh, my first day on the street, I had a foot pursuit. Um, nothing to the degree that you just described, but for it to be literally my first day and get into a foot pursuit, I could not believe they were paying me to do uh, <laughs> the job. You know, it, it, yeah. there's just something about it. You, you get to experience things that most people um, don't have the the ability to experience, or I, w- I would even say the pleasure. Again, not in a sadistic way, but y- you get to to get on a level of intimacy with people who are suffering in so many different ways that um, is just really really powerful uh, moments. Uh, can also be really detrimental to your to your mental health at times. But it, there's just something about it that that's just an incredible um, job, and, it, and it's it, um, and and that's why I just I just have a ton of respect for the people that can do it, especially people who have worked in uh, urban environments because it is a very challenging uh, environment, like you like you just described. Yeah, it's a different animal. Um, people don't realize, you know, once the sun goes down. Uh, some of these areas are like third world countries. I mean, the gunshots constantly going off, the fights, the the stuff that takes place. And unfortunately, you know, that's a smaller part of your community, yet that's where 90% of your crime takes place. And right. the people out in the urban areas who've never experienced it would not go in that area, would be scared to death. They can't understand what goes on. So when the police have to take care of business to protect themselves or the people around these people, they get all bent out of shape and can't understand that because it's not logical for normal people to do some of the things these people do. So they can't understand it because they've never experienced it. And therefore that's where you have some of the divide, I think with police and and the community, because unless you've experienced it, it, it's, it's almost unreal to believe some of the stuff you see. Yeah. 
And I don't think a lot of people understand the level of violence that is happening mm. in cities. Yeah. Um, Horrible. You know, obviously Louisville, Louisville is is a much larger city than Lancaster City where I work. But even in Lancaster City, there were certain areas that were were known to people in the community that uh, you didn't want to be in that area after dark. There were even certain areas that we we tried to have at least two officers go into at a time and never go in alone at certain points throughout my career, just because certain areas were that um, violent and and that um, you know anti anti police. And and it's just it's hard to describe or explain that to people that, that there are actually areas like that within the United States, but they, but they do exist. And, and, uh, and I think that's, that's also why I get super upset when I, when I, when I see people immediately want to label the, the police as racist who are working in some of these urban areas that the majority is, um, you know, black, Latino, um, and, and the violence isn't due to their race. It's just due to socioeconomic status. It's due to fatherless homes. I think fatherless homes is a huge issue. Um, you know, there's all types of issues, uh, you know, that are involved in that, but the officers that are there, there's officers from every race. Um, and, and, but many of the officers are white and they're actually in these neighborhoods trying to make a difference and they get demonized for it every day. And, um, and so I think it's an important thing to talk about because, you know, just, just to have you describe what it's like in Louisville for me to describe what it was like in Lancaster city, I think it just helps people to understand, Hey, you know, these officers that are out there doing the job, they're, they're working in very difficult situations. We probably shouldn't just demonize them immediately when, when they do have to take care of business, like, like you said. So I think that's a, that's an excellent point. Yeah, what I've tried to tell people is, you know, you you're really quick to label police as racist. And I say that that's an oxymoron because why would I leave my suburban comfortable house as a white guy, go to the black community that's poor that hates me and be willing to lay my life down for somebody I don't know. That makes no sense to you label me a racist because I'm willing to die for one of your own people. That makes no sense to me. You know, we're not John right. Wayne out here um doing things that we shouldn't do. There's a few people like that, but they're very scarce and very, very far and few between. And hopefully we can weed those people out because we don't need them. The community doesn't need them. And I think for the most part, we do a pretty good job, but you know, we're dealing with human nature and, and you're going to have the bad apples. Right. For sure. For sure. I did want to touch on you. You had mentioned, you know, coming on the job and, and um, you know, some of the some of the officers that came on with you came from much worse situations, and then you were dealing with people on the street that you know found themselves in much worse situations. And you mentioned how you believe your parents, the home that you had, uh, really helped you and and kind of gave you, even though you guys weren't rich, um, gave you kind of like a hand up or or to to be able to handle and and. Um, do your life well enough for you to get hired and, and be on the police department. How much, how much do you, how, how big of a problem was that in the areas where you worked with the parental situations, the lack of fathers, like how, how prevalent was that? And, and how, how important do you think that is to a conversation like we're having right now? I think it's, I think it's the ultimate. I think that's where we've failed and where the, where the government has almost encouraged people to not be with as a family unit. You know, they reward people with uh, social economic stuff, 
because, okay, well, if you've got kids, then you can't be married or you can't make so much. Instead of setting these programs up where, hey, we're going to help you for X amount of years if you get a job and if you go on the right path, and then we'll slowly scale that back until you're in a successful situation. They fail people with that. Instead, they, they control them with it. But the main thing is, it used to be when I was young, I remember this because I had plenty of black friends in the area I grew up in. Even though they didn't have dads, they respected their mom. And if they if they took one step outside, mom would whack them upside the head. And what I've seen lately, especially once I came on and as things progressed, it's even gotten worse, is these communities, black and white, don't have respect for anybody. Not even their moms who are the ones, you know, when the dads leave the home or they don't know who their dad is. They don't even have respect for their mom who sacrifices things, who's taking care of them. But then on the other hand, now we've got a generation of those people who are parents themselves now who the moms leave these three, four, five-year-olds at home while they're out clubbing on the weekends. So we've we've spiraled into an even worse situation than we had 15, 20 years ago when I came on. I've seen the degre- the uh, uh, the re- regression of the family even worse, not just not a mom and dad in the home, but now we have parents who don't even want to be parents yet they have these kids and it's a sad situation it really is yeah yeah for sure so kind of kind of jumping ahead now um you know you know talking about your career uh you worked in several different specialty units throughout your career can you um talk about uh some of these units what you were doing um and and the main uh focus of some of these units that you were in yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously patrol is the backbone of any department and in any city, but you have to have these specialty units, whether it be homicide, robbery, narcotics, um, to, to pinpoint things when, when things are getting out of hand. So my, my desire was always narcotics, uh, plain clothes or undercover stuff. And, and so early on in my career, you know, we were told in the academy, hey, every three to five years, switch up what you're doing to keep things fresh. And it's so true. Because I don't know how the guys stay on patrol their entire career in the same area. I would go totally insane. Uh, but so I got on what's the very first thing I got on was called a flex platoon. And what that is, each division has those. And they're basically at whatever the major needs in that division is what you do. However, you're working complaints. So 95% of what you do is narcotics work because most of your violence, most of your theft comes off of narcotic use or, or selling. So we did mostly that. We did some prostitution, some uh, robbery details, stuff like that. But most of it was warrants and um, uh, just handling all these these lower level drug dealers. And I did that for years until I got promoted. I uh, went back to Late Watch. But then I went to our district detective's office. And uh, that's just where we, we handled every crime except for homicides and business robberies. And I got to see that side of it, you know, the, the suit and tie side. Did that for about a year and a half. And I thought, man, well, this is nice and it's needed. It's not for me. It's just not my cup of tea. So I went back to a flex unit, um, did that for a while. But then they, they, the crime in Louisville started even escalating more than it already was. And they started a violent crime unit in 2012. So I went to it as a sergeant, had a group underneath me. And it was the hardest I've ever worked in my career, but the funnest, uh, the most rewarding. Uh, in one year, my my small group of guys got over 700 guns off the street. So it was just, it was a nonstop. When you walked in the door and you put your belt on, you went nonstop for 10, 12 hours. I mean, some nights we didn't even eat or we'd swing through Taco Bell at, you know, two in the morning and eat something. But 
great time and uh, got a lot of murders, a lot of robbers off the street and good times. So then when that ended for me, I went back to flex for a little bit, but then I finally got my chance to go to narcotics, which is what I'd always wanted to do in my career. And I first started on the, you know, the lower level narcotics, the street platoon stuff, worked my way up to major case where I had TFOs for the FBI and uh, DEA working for me. We did wire cases. We did larger long-term cases. Uh, and then right there at the end, uh, before 2020, I decided, I talked to my wife and said, hey, I've seen all these guys for years go these hard chargers. And <laughs> not all cops are hard chargers, as I'm sure you've seen that. <laughs> for but, sure. Uh, but I've seen the hard chargers that go, 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 go. And then they retire. And it's like, you've got the, the slamming on the brakes and they don't know what to do with their life. So then some of these guys get into trouble, you know, cause then they're looking for that next adrenaline fix and it's not always a good thing. Right. So I said, you know what, I'm going to taper off. Um, the guy who was a friend of mine who had left our interdiction unit was leaving. He was retiring. Uh, they asked me to step into that unit and I thought I can still do drug work. I can still be with the guys. I can still even do warrants, but I don't, I won't have the caseload. I won't have the, the, the nonstop boots on the ground uh, that I've had all these years. So it was time right. to kind of taper down my last four or five years of work or so I thought. And, um, and then 2020 happened and here we are. So just real quick, the, the 700 guns that you talked about taking off the street, was that like a citywide part of that yes. unit or just the area where you were? Okay. No, that, that unit was That's a citywide so unit. Yeah, it was, I'm telling you, man, it was, we had a 15, uh, a guy who was a sergeant in homicide for 15 years, Troy Thompson. One night, uh, a homicide took place. My guys, and it wasn't me. Trust me, Anthony, it wasn't me. It was the guys that I had working for me. We got to handpick these guys. And I was fortunate enough to get guys who were hungry, who were, some of them were young. So they were really good with internet stuff, Facebook and all that. Mm -hmm. And most of the guys we lured out that were wanted for shootings was because of fake Facebook pages and they thought they were hooking up with some woman. I mean, guys yep. are nuts when it comes to women. Um, but one night we get this, this murder took place. And within like three hours, we had located where this guy was in an apartment. We went in, did a warrant, grabbed him. I was talking to that sergeant on scene. He was like, how do y'all do this? He said, my 15 years in homicide, these last two years have been, you've made our life easy because there's a homicide or a shooting that comes out. And within days, if not hours, we've got a suspect in hand. And again, I, I, not credit to me, credit to the guys that were doing all the work. But that just goes to show you if if you let guys, if you take the reins off and you let guys do what they're good at doing, you put them in the right positions, so many things can take place that that these administrators don't understand. They, they're they so micromanaging and afraid of the public of what they're going to say that they put the reins on people. And that unit actually got shut down uh, a couple of years ago because the complaints were up because these guys were just out there busting heads and, and still doing the work, you know, God's work. And, and they didn't like the feedback they were getting from um, the people in the city who should have no voice anyway. Right. And, and uh, you know, I just, I just love that story about, you know, how, how your guys, you know, your humility in saying it was your, your guys doing all that work. My last two years in Lancaster city, I oversaw a, um, we called it a selective enforcement unit. And it was, it was mainly a drug unit. Mostly what we were doing was street level drug stuff, um, which obviously was getting us a rubbing shoulders with a lot of guys that were involved in violent crime in the city. I had five guys, um, again, handpicked and man, they, they made me look like a superstar. These guys were so savvy when it came to like social media, way more savvy than I was. 
Um, and the same type of stuff. They would lure out like guys that we were we needed to drop um, warrants on for delivery. Um, they were heavily involved in knowing who all the players were whenever we had a shooting or homicide. Um, and and they the work they did. I mean, five guys, and we were dropping seven hundred to nine hundred felonies a year. Um, and it was it? and it was just like you know wild um, how hard these guys work, but. You have guys that work like you have officers that work like that. You have a lot. Well, I don't want to say a lot. You have some that don't work like that. <laughs> um, and uh, but yeah, it was just such a great unit to work on. So I could hear as you were talking about, it, I could just hear the love of that unit coming out in your voice, and I can totally understand uh, where you're coming from. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on is is just the fact that units like that, and you touched on it you started seeing it take a lot of heat. Um, I think towards, towards the end of your career, before the Breonna Taylor raid, uh, units such as that type of unit started taking a lot of heat from, um, the city because of, for whatever reasons, political reasons. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you dive into that. What, what kind of things did you start seeing as, as you were approaching 2020, um, that began to change in the department and and in city hall or, or you know the administration running the city that began to kind of like push these type of units to the wayside and change how things were done and why do you think that was happening well ours was kind of twofold so when the colonel who was over our unit retired she was a black female so she had a lot of connections in the black community she had a, a voice that was respected and she basically said, hey, guys, I need you to go take care of the work and I'll take care of you. And she did it. And so we were able to do police work, not illegal stuff, but we were actually able to do police work without the fear of being hammered in our, our public, uh, our professional standards unit constantly. And so that helped a lot. And when she retired and a new colonel came in, this colonel wanted to reinvent the wheel. Uh, they wanted to do things their way. They micromanaged and it just kind of, it changed the environment. And a lot of the guys that were seasoned that have been doing this a long time said, I'm not dealing with this. I'm a grown adult. You know, I'm not going to be treated like a child. And they left myself included. And once that happened, a whole crop of young cops came in. I'm talking two, three year guys who didn't have the experience. They wanted to be Rambo. And so there were some mistakes made along the way on the police side. I'll admit that, you know, there was some overly aggressive stuff that took place or some some stops that maybe shouldn't have happened the way they did. And it's, it's sure. not, it wasn't a hard issue because these guys wanted to do the right thing. And a lot of them are still good cops now, but they did not have the veterans there to help them and show them the way. Uh, but the main thing was you had the city leaders like our, our Metro council come in and they tried to do away with the pretextual stops. Um, they, they totally started vilifying the police and two of them are actually retired cops. And that blew my mind. One of them was a trainer when I came through. And he was a great cop, great narcotics mm -hmm. guy. I looked up to him. But once he became a politician, things changed. And so when that took place and it kind of it kind of threw a wet blanket on things. And um, so they disbanded that unit completely. And and I'm not I'm not kidding. Crime almost tripled in our city after they did that. Uh, last year, we almost had 200 homicides. We've only got a million people in Louisville a little over a million. So our crime per capita is almost three times that of Chicago's, but you don't hear about it because it's 200 murders compared to 800. Right. Uh, but you know, Chicago's got what, 8 million people. And we've got a million. So it's unreal. If you look at the numbers, the way things happen and the reasons they happen 
And these administrators are just too, and I'll say it, they're too stupid to, to get it. I don't know if they're trying to keep their job or trying to set up their next career, their next chief's job, whatever it is, but they're too ignorant to see it. And, and they're afraid of, they're not strong enough to take the, the heat and explain right. why we do what we do. So it, it was pretty disappointing. Yeah. I, it, it is so disappointed. I, I mean, I, there, there is a, and I, I talk about this probably too much on this podcast, but just a, a vacuum in leadership uh, in law enforcement. And I don't know if it's always been like that or if it's just been my experience and, and seeing what I'm seeing now. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously there are, there are good leaders out there, but man, there is a crisis of leadership where th- this idea that if, you're, if you have a unit who's getting a lot of complaints, then they must be doing something wrong. Well, a lot of times that means they're actually doing Yes. What's right? Because yeah. when, when you start pushing back against people who are engaged in, in evil actions and criminal actions, and when you push against that over and over and over again, they're going to complain about you uh, because yeah, they want to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, it ticks me off when I when, like, say somebody gets in trouble for something, whether it be justified or not, or just the media throwing you know, spin on things and they, they pull somebody's record over their career and they go, oh, he had this many use of forces or this many complaints. Well, show me a guy with no use of forces or no complaints over his career, and I'll show you a lazy a lazy turd because exactly. he's not doing anything. And exactly. like our department got real big on um, if you miss court, they would hammer you. The first time would be a warning and, and write up in your file. Then you get a day. Then every time after that, no matter how long it was between, they would start doubling your punishment. So if you work late watch and you overslept and you, you already missed court twice, you're getting a four-day unpaid suspension. And these wow. are the only reason you have court is because you're out there doing something. So the guys, you know, the, the guys who did nothing never got in trouble because they never had court cases. Right. And and so that's just the the I guess the two edged sword of this career. And but if you'll notice, a lot of these cities that you're talking about with with failed leadership, you can look at who's in charge. And most of them are Democrats. Mm-hmm. And and they're very progressive. Like our our mayor who's been here, he's in his twelfth year. Thank God he's not he can't run again. Uh, but man, he has he has taken our department and driven it in the ground with his progressiveness. And, you know, his first couple of years, I thought, OK, this guy's all right. He's a businessman. Um, he wasn't real political in that aspect. And then something changed in, in, in Barack Obama's uh, uh, tenure. And we became the flagship city for 20, 20th century policing. We were it. Our guys went to D.C., uh, about once a month and checked in and reported and did all these things. And once that started and they got their claws in us, it was over. I mean, you could see the decline in the way leadership in our department took place. And and it's just a sad thing. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and, and I think it's, it's also, I think what's so concerning for me about it. I mean, you see, you see the level of crime just skyrocketing um, in these, in these democratic uh, run uh, cities. Uh, Democrat-run cities, and um, and to get that back, uh, you know, to get that back, the only way the police are going to be able to regain control and get that back, unfortunately, is force. Because when when you allow criminals to just operate with impunity, you you can't talk them back into uh, towing the line. Uh, you know, it takes it takes boots on the ground. It takes it takes force because there's going to be a fight there. Um, you know, when 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 the pendulum swings back the other way, I think it's it's just going to you're going to see a jump in use of force instance because 
all these all these uh, guys that are involved in this criminal activity are have been completely emboldened to do whatever they want to do. Um, and and I, I've always said it's it's like dealing with a, a child. If you have a child that you allow to do whatever they want to do until they're 10 years old, and then at 10, you decide, now I'm going to rein them in. Well, you're going to have a fight on your hands. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is what we're, you know, unfortunately going to see uh, before, you know, before it gets better. And I think you also made a good point about the amount of senior and seasoned officers with a lot of experience who are, who are leaving, who are saying, we're done. You know, we're, we're spent. Um, you don't want cops like us. And you have all these, all these young officers coming in that don't have the level of experience, um, who, like you said, generally have good hearts and, it, and it's not a heart issue. It's, it's an experience issue. It's a training issue. It's a lack of having someone to walk alongside them and show them the ropes. Um, that that's also, I think, I think the profession is going to feel the pain of that for, for years to come. Oh yeah. I remember when, when I first got on, it wasn't, you know, the sergeant didn't have to deal with you much. Those senior guys in the platoon, man, they would check you. And if you did something stupid, you heard about it. And now, you know, if you check somebody, then they complain on you for rudeness or they got their feelings hurt. So it's just a different generation, not only on the police department, but on the streets as well. Because like you said, the the lack of respect and, and the emboldenedness of the criminal, you know, get uh, in 2020, I, it blew my mind how many videos you saw of guys just getting up in officers' faces and cussing and spitting and pushing. I mean, actually yeah. putting their hands on them and they did nothing in return. Yeah. You know, that used to be a hospital visit. And yeah. I'm not saying that was right, but that's the way it was. And and but we didn't have all these other issues either. You know, if they right. saw the police come and they ran. Now they're like, let's go. You know, what are you going to do? Because they know you're so limited on what you can do. And it's not right. even a legal thing because the Supreme Court backs up most of what officers do that these departments still hang them out for because of, quote, optics. And it's 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 a tough time to be a cop. I'm glad I'm not one now. We need great cops. I'm so thankful they're there. But I would not start right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's just a, a sad thing to hear because, you know, I don't I don't know you well, uh, but in just a short time, we've been talking and uh, in reading your book, it's obvious that you you were a hard charger. You were out there in the mix and, and doing uh, good work. And um, and yeah, it's, it's just a shame that it's kind of kind of where we're at and where we're going. Um, and, you know, just kind of segueing into into all this, I mean, you so you're you're moving on in your career. You make that move um, to kind of step back because you kind of saw the writing on the wall. Uh, some of the stuff we, we've been talking about and you were getting ready to, you know, move out and, and retire in the next, you know, four or five years or whatever you had in mind. Um, and then March of 2020 hits. Uh, you're involved in in the in the raid. Uh, the service of the search warrant at Brianna Taylor's apartment. Can you talk about how you how you even became uh, involved in that? Because you were not one of the officers that were investigating the people that Brianna was involved with, or or the main target, Jamarcus Glover. You were not even part of the unit that was investigating them. You just kind of jumped on because they needed help. Why did they need help serving? Uh, these warrants or or this warrant and and how did you get involved? So this unit that, that did this is called the place based unit. Uh, it's a program that was kind of based out of 
similar unit up in Cincinnati where they would like focus and target on, on certain individuals. It would be a very precise, uh, all hands on deck in their unit. I think their unit had five people in it, five or six. Um, so anybody that was a, a problem child, basically, they would hone in on them and they would do whatever it took until that problem was solved. Now, that's great in theory, but you and I both know that, unfortunately, in these days, one of the biggest problems we're facing is that you can do all this work. You can put your life in jeopardy. You catch these guys, you put them in jail, they're out the next day or the next week. I don't care how many felonies they have, if they're PFOs, if, if whatever. For some reason, the court system right now is a joke. And it's a tragi- tragedy to our, our communities because these guys, we're dealing with the same people over and over and over until we have an incident uh, that goes nationwide. And that's what this one did, because Jamarcus Glover, the guy who was the main target in this investigation, had five uh, pending felonies for drugs and guns. And his most recent arrest was two months before the warrant. And uh, they, they collected, I think, uh, AK, two ARs, three handguns, uh, cocaine, meth, and I think fentanyl pills. I can't remember. Um, but Brianna bailed him out in January and, um, you know, didn't stay in jail, but a couple of days. So he should have already been in jail. He should have stayed in jail and we would have never been there that night. So that's the main issue. But back to, back to the point, uh, they sent out, uh, the mayor's office is the one that brought them this case, which is very odd. The mayor's office does not bring us cases. You know, we get them through the community, through complaints. Right. And. So I remember seeing the a representative from the mayor's office and then our, our upper command, like our assistant chiefs would come in every Monday and they would take this new unit, which was made up of young detectives who didn't have a lot of experience, take them in this room and they'd be in there an hour or two hours going over what's going on in the case. How far along are they? When are they going to hit it? All this stuff. Um, and so about two weeks before the event, uh, we got an email in our criminal interdiction division that said, is there anybody that can help us in these warrants? We've got five warrants. We want to do them simultaneously. It's a Superman power intensive unit. Uh, we need all the bodies we can get. SWAT's hitting some of them, but we still need the bodies even after SWAT clears the houses to, you know, control the scene, search, all that. So right. I was already working a little bit of overtime that night at FedEx. And I asked one of the guys that worked with me, he's my buddy. I said, hey, we're already working that night. We get off at 10. This brief is at 10. Do you want to go do it? I'll ask for the easiest easiest one there is because you had four of them that were in our inner city in the urban area that two of them were trap houses. And, and, you know, going in that they're going to be dirty, that you're going to have a scene with, you know, 50 to hundred people coming out, yelling at you, saying stuff. And I dealt with that for years. I was tired of it. So there was one, one building on there that was an apartment that was about 10 miles away. That was in a, a, a mostly white area. You know, we hear stuff about, oh, we only go after black areas. Well, this was mostly a white area that Brianna lived in. And I said, hey, give me that one and I'll come help because I wanted it to be, quote, easier. So I thought. Uh, so that's how we were, were recruited for that night. OK. And and um, when you said Jamarcus Glover, you said five felonies, five previous felonies. And the one was in January where he where he had multiple weapons and everything like that. Do you know what his do you have any idea what his bail was set at that Brianna could bail him out? I don't know on that. Uh, you got to realize in Jefferson County, they might set it at twenty or 50,000, then they'll do a 10%, or right. then they'll do a property. And I'm not kidding. It is such a revolving door. And it's been a joke for years, but it's gotten even worse, yeah. especially with all this bail reform stuff. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know what it was. But he has five pending cases, not even just five cases, because he had even more than that. He came from Mississippi. He had a felony record down there, uh, came up to Louisville and was doing his deals up here. 
Um, and since then, even after this case, they dismissed them here in Kentucky as long as he would move to Mississippi. And then he got caught a month later after he was supposed to be in Mississippi back here selling drugs again, and they released him again. So that just tells you that the the history here and and where the fail stop is. I mean, it's there. That's where the right. failures are at. Right. And and now for for those cases that have happened afterwards now, hey, you go to Mississippi and no, he's back here, he's dealing drugs again. Just an optics thing again that they don't they, they don't just say enough with this guy and 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 give him a sentence that's going to stick. Man, I, I wish I knew that answer. Um, right. I know that I know for a fact that Kenneth Walker, the guy that shot me, who was known to deal drugs, uh, when they did warrant on his phone, showed that he had done home invasions on people. I know when he got released, they were told because they he, one of the informants was into him, and he he FaceTimed him after he got out of jail after they dismissed the charges on him, and he showed him a box of dope and was holding a gun up and laughing how he got off, and they wanted to just buy drugs from him, just get him on that angle. And downtown said, nope, he's off limits, can't touch him. So that's just kind of what we're dealing with here. Incredible. Incredible. Going back to, you were saying that that City Hall, uh, the unit that that was in charge of this investigation of Jamarcus Glover, City Hall had kind of brought that complaint to them. What do do you make of that? Like, what what was that all about? (laughs) So in 2000, I believe 17, and I've got all these documents. And hopefully they'll come to light here shortly. But in 2017, um, they had the University of Kentucky draw up plans for this. They're reimagining this. It's called the Russell neighborhood is where Elliott Avenue is at, where Jamarcus Clover was selling his drugs. And so they're reimagining it. And they they showed this uh, these blueprints and this building with a fountain. And, you know, it looks like this luxury place. So the city had been for several years going in, doing nuisance abatements on these properties and getting them from the owners for a dollar. They basically still own all these properties. Well, I've got a map that shows the properties that the city have taken, and then it had these two houses that Jamarcus Glover was operating out of that needed to be obtained by the city. And so mm-hmm. that was the purpose of this. Let's sick the police on them. Let's use them as our Gestapo. Go in, get what we can until we can get enough. Because after three times of a felony taking place at that location, the city can seize the property. And so, and they've actually done that since then. They paid a dollar for both of those properties. They've been torn down. And just this last week, this week, matter of fact, the city filed a lawsuit to get eminent domain over a church that's in that area that is a historic church so they can tear it down and and finish doing their development down there. And so a lot of shady stuff behind the scenes because this mayor, we had an area called Nulu that was developed probably 10 years ago now, did the same type thing there. All his buddies got the contracts for all these buildings and for doing all the work down there. So it's a big, big money grab is what it is. And so they were using the police to do that. And as soon as the the, the civil attorney amended the lawsuit, he did that on a Thursday, I believe. He amended the lawsuit to put the gentrification in there because he got the same documents I got. And two days later on a Sunday night, in the dark of night, without city council approval, they settled for $12 million. And anything over a million dollars is supposed to be approved by city council. They bypassed that. They didn't tell anybody they were doing it. That way, the mayor did not have to go in and give a deposition. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It's That's just incredible. shady politics all around. Right. It's unreal. Right. Yeah. 
And and um, yeah, absolutely, it does sound like very shady politics all around. Uh, and then in addition to that, you you do have the criminal activity that Jamarcus and and his crew is involved in. So you 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 sign up. You said to to do this overtime detail. You take uh, what you think it's going to be the calmest um, house to hit. How many how many warrants were they serving um, that evening? Total it's supposed to be five. Okay, and they were serving them all simultaneously. So at the same time, trying to hit all these places. That's what they wanted to do, but what they had to do because we didn't have enough bodies. They were doing, um, I think, four at one time, and then they were going to go to Jamarcus Glover's baby mama house as soon as they secured Ellie and secured him. They were going to go over to her house, grab a crew, and run over there. Uh, so okay. I think they ended up doing four, maybe three. I'm not. I'm not really sure because once once things went sideways, you know, the plans right. kind of go out the window. Right. So what what just just uh you know walk us through what what happened then uh when you got to uh Brianna Taylor's uh, apartment um some of the the biggest lies that have been put out there by the press about this and that have been not just the press um you know some you know famous people sports stars the the lies that continue to be just spread about this um what were some of those lies and, and what actually what actually happened when you when you guys got there? Well, one of the big lies is is we had the wrong apartment. Um, I remember the, the press conference the day after the shooting and uh, Brianna Taylor's family got on there and said she didn't even know Jamarcus Glover. She had no idea who he was. Well, they had dated off and on for seven years. Um, everything that that he owned was registered to her house. His car was his cell phone, his bank account. She had bailed him out, like I said, two months prior and used his address. So everything pointed to him, if not living there, using her because that's, and you know how it is. That's how they, they take these girls who come up in these bad environments, who don't have dads, who are looking for love in any way they can, and they totally take advantage of them. And that's what was happening here. You know, sure. Brianna was just kind of a lost soul that, that was latching onto whoever. So um, when we got there that night, there was fortunately for us, there was a, a car that had pulled up right before we got there. When I pulled up, the guy who had the eye didn't tell us it was there. So I was a little on edge. You know, I, I looked and said, where did this car come from? I didn't get an answer. And I was ticked off because, you know, we're supposed to get updates on any information uh, on these doors. So but that was a good thing in, in retrospect, because it was a guy there who did not live in the area. He's not even an American citizen or not from America anyway. Um, and he was there to pick his daughter up on this, on the apartment right above Brianna's. So when we went up to knock on the door, I knocked a couple of times before we announced, he heard me this, when I started announcing, banging on the door, yelling, please search warrant. He pops out from that upstairs and starts arguing with one of the guys because, uh, Brett obviously addressed him and said, get back in the apartment, get back in the apartment. Cause we don't, you know, you don't know who your threats are. And sure. There was a little bit of an argument that took place, but fortunately, that was the guy who later on said, yes, they knocked and they announced. Originally, mm -hmm. they said we didn't knock or announce. And then that theory went out the window when Kenneth Walker said, yeah, they're banging on the door, but I just didn't know. I didn't hear what they said. I don't know who they were, um, which that's also impossible to, in my opinion, but right. um, impossible to prove that too. So we knocked. I knocked and banged on this door for a minute, which is an eternity when you're doing a search warrant. I had never yeah, done one this long like this because I've been in, involved in or been through the door in over 2000 search warrants. And when we were in the brief, the guy leading the brief said, look, man, this is uh, we're just going there trying to find, you know, the money and the documents and maybe some dope she's holding for him. 
but it's a single black female. She's heavy set. She's there alone. No dogs, no kids. Uh, give her plenty of time to come to the door because hopefully she'll get on the team and, and she'll give us some more information on this, this organization. So that's what we were doing, even though it goes against, you know, everything that we're taught, everything that that's normal, because anytime you do anything that you normally don't do, <clears throat> you're always dealing with, the, you know, something going wrong. And so I was up there and I banged on this door for a minute and, and probably five different cadences of, of open hand knocks, yelling police search warrant, police search warrant. Um, right before we hit the door, the guy who was on the ram. So if you're looking at the door, I'm on the left. The guy on the ram, with the ram is on the right. The door opens from right to left. So mm-hmm. once he hit the door, I would be able to see inside without waiting for the door to clear. But right before he hit the door, he said, man, I think I heard somebody inside. And so I announced again, hey, if you can hear us, come to the door, please search warrant. We got a warrant to search your house. No response. Knocked one more time and announced, looked at my lieutenant who happened to be there. And he gave the nod that go ahead and hit it. So the door was breached. Um, I cleared from right to left in the living room what I could see. And as soon as I stepped into the doorway, right in the, didn't even go through it, just stepped in there to, to be able to get eyes down the hallway. I was met with Jamarcus Glover and Brianna Taylor standing side by side, super dark in the apartment. There was some ambient light coming from their bedroom, from the TV. Um, as I as I went from right to left in my field of vision, I stopped at Jamarcus Glover because I saw the gun in his hand. Now, this sounds slow, but everything is super quick. And right. my brain went, oh, crap, something's wrong, because you never have somebody, people just standing there waiting for you, especially two right. of them. You got people hiding, people running, people with their hands up saying, I give up. This was different. So my brain knew something was off. But as soon as I turned and saw him, I could see the end of that gun facing me. And by the time my brain registered it was a gun, I got shot. I saw the flash, felt the hit in my leg. I returned four shots, uh, got off offline, got behind the doorway and, and fired two more where he dove into a bedroom. Uh, unfortunately, when he dove into the bedroom, Brianna tried to follow him into that bedroom. And that's when she was struck by the bullets. Uh, so it was, you know, tragedy all the way around. Right. Uh, other than you, who, what other officers fired um, at the scene there? So when I got shot, um, the, after I went behind the door, I went down, uh, had no muscle movement in my leg. Plus in my mind, I thought I knew I'd been hit in an artery because when I put my hand down there, it was just full of blood and right. being on the street, seeing multiple people shot. I knew this wasn't just a through and through that some, it was an artery wound. So I thought in my mind, and again, all this is so quick, the this, this stuff that, that your mind just pops off with. I thought, well, I can't be on my feet because I'm pumping blood out. So I sat on my rear end on my hip. And as I go down and do that, Miles Cosgrove, Detective Cosgrove, is firing over my head. And I really couldn't hear his shots. I was able to count my shots. I knew exactly how many I'd shot. But then I really couldn't hear his. I guess I was kind of uh, the tunnel vision had kicked in. But I knew he was shooting. So I jumped up and I hobbled out and got, you know, out of there into the parking lot. Well, as soon as I get in the parking lot in between these two cars, I go down because I stepped off the curb. And again, this leg wasn't working, but just out of habit, I stepped down on my left leg and it went out and I went down. And as I'm going between these cars, Miles stopped shooting. And there was a brief pause, maybe a half a second. And I heard Brett Hankison start shooting. I didn't know who it was at the time. Mm -hmm. But right. in my mind, I thought, holy crap, they're still shooting. Even though this is quick, it was just a lot of rounds really quick. And right. I could tell it was a different gun because the sound of the shots inside that breezeway just made a different echo and a different sound than the ones that were out in the open. And 
But again, by the time I hit the ground and, and butt scooted back, the shots were done. That's why we named the book 12 Seconds in the Dark, because from the time that door was breached and the first shot happened until the last shot, and it was silent, was no more than 12 seconds. And it's, um, it's amazing how quick things can unfold and take place. Um, so Brett had moved to the side, and, and everybody criticizes Brett, and, and he got charged on a state level. He was acquitted, and now the feds have come in and charged him. Uh, yeah. For basically the same crime on top of civil rights violations, which it does not meet that standard or that code. Um, but uh, people criticize him. And I say, wait a minute. What he heard in that breezeway, the echoes and, the, and, and all that, because he was behind Miles initially. And he was going going to go through the door next. And he saw the shot. He saw the flash. He heard me say I was hit. He knew he couldn't go through that door because Miles was there. So he started circling around the outside where he knew they were in the apartment where he thought that he last saw them. Right. And in his mind, he thought he saw a rifle, which everybody sees things different in these traumatic situations. And it's not always correct. We know eyewitness testimony is wrong like 70% of the time. So things are unfolding very quickly. He moves around the side. He's hearing Miles um, unload his magazine, which he did. He shot 15, uh, 16 rounds. And they're so rapid. He thought it was a machine gun fire. He thought there was a rifle inside shooting back. And he thought, he heard I got hit. He never saw me come out. He thought they were executing us at the doorway. So he told me personally, he said, I was doing everything I could to get them to quit shooting inside because I thought you guys were getting killed. And right. so that's why he did what he did that, that's been really criticized. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I think it's just uh, important for the way you're describing it uh, for, to, to help everyone understand that these these incidents you know it, it's so easy for these keyboard warriors to like talk about oh they should have done this they should have shouldn't have done that why didn't they try this why didn't they do this in those moments like literally you are just trying to live like you just yeah. you just want to go home you know and you're you're making split second decisions under an extreme amount of stress um that that um you know you're just crucified for if you if you make the wrong decision, but you it's just impossible to always make the perfect tactical decision in those moments, um, and especially when you're 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 you believe and you're perceiving something again. Not that you started the bad guy started this, and and you're trying to deal with it as as best as you can. You 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 mentioned how um, uh, Brett, I, I think his first name's Brett Hackinson. Did I say his last name correctly? Hankinson. Hankinson. Yeah. He um, you know, he he was he was charged at the at at the state level. Um, you know, this this went before the grand jury. Um and and um you know, Daniel Cameron, the the uh, Kentucky attorney general, um, you know, didn't I, I thought, man, I, I really appreciated that guy when he when he came out and said um what what he said about the case and everything. And we, we can talk about that a little more, but ultimately Hankinson was was charged at the state level. They had a trial for him. He was found not guilty um, by a. It was a jury trial, correct? Yes, it wasn't it just was. a bench trial. Yeah, a jury trial. A jury found him not guilty, and now the feds are, like you said, pretty much recharging him for the same things. What What's your take on that? Um, and and just touching on, you know, the other charges the the feds have now brought against some of the other officers that were involved on the investigative side. Um, can you talk about that briefly and, and what's your take on, on all that now? 
Yeah, let me touch on Brett's first. <clears throat> sure. Excuse my voice, sorry. Um, so not only did they charge him with, um, I can't remember the term, endangerment to human life or disregard for human life, something like that, which is just wanting endangerment on the state level. Right. Mm-hmm. But when they added the civil rights violation to it, the sentence for that or the, the punishment for that is life in prison. So you got a guy who did not strike anyone with his bullets, who didn't write the warrant or put us there, had nothing to do with it, trying to save other officers' life, and his actions caused zero harm to anyone, and they're trying to put him away for life. I think it's a political stunt. I think it's a ploy. And here's one of the reasons you know it is, because they told Ben Crump, who is the piece of crap civil attorney that inflames all these cities and walks away with pockets full of cash, they told him the day before. He was already in Louisville before they locked these cops up. But they didn't tell our police chief. So that tells you the mindset of why they did what they did. So you've got Kristen Clark, who is uh, the assistant uh, attorney general who's over civil rights division. I've got tweets from her before she was appointed to that position saying, we all need to go to jail. We need to be fired. She can't believe we murdered this poor girl. All these things. So her view on this case is so slanted and so tainted anyway that she already had a preconceived idea of what she was going to do when she got in there. And she did exactly that. Um, so I, I think that is a political stunt. I hope he can beat it again because he beat it in Jefferson County. And let me tell you, Jefferson County is like a, a, a little San Francisco. We are so liberal and we're a democratic city. I was so surprised that he beat the charges there, but thank God he did. And I think the only reason he did is because for two years, our city and our department refuse and still to this day refuse to release the facts on this case. They will not say, hey, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. All these things that, that the pub, that these attorneys have said the lie. They've not once approached those. And once the trial went in place and these jurors heard some of the truth and saw some of the facts, I think their eyes were open and they were like, well, this isn't what we've heard for two years. Right. And so hopefully that'll take place in the, in the federal trial. Now, as far as the other ones, Man, that was a blow when I heard when I read the indictments because I was let me let me frame this for you. Back in January, because I'd gone to the interdiction unit, which is over parcels as well. And we did stuff at UPS and FedEx, but we had zero contact with the Postal Service. Uh LMPD and the Postal Service had gotten into it about two years before I took that job and they severed ties. Did not work with each other. I didn't know them. I never talked to them, any of that. So Josh Jaynes, who's the the main detective on this case, stopped me in the office one day and said, hey, can you uh, look this name up to Marcus Glover at 3003 Springfield, apartment four, and tell me if he's got any packages going there? I said, who's it through? He said, Postal. And I said, I have zero connections with Postal, but I know who does. So one of the smaller departments on on the outskirts of the city, who I'm friends with, the the sergeant in that unit, they, they work with Postal. So while Josh was standing there, I texted him and said, Hey, do you have anything on this location with this name? He said, sounds familiar. We just did. We just intercepted a box on a Glover. I'll get back with you. I told Josh that he said, cool. About a week later, I was at UPS. I saw the the detective that was working the case. And I said, Hey man, did you ever get back with Josh on, on that text I sent you? He said, yeah, I was talking to Kelly Goodlett, who was the other person indicted. He said, and we were comparing vehicles of Glover. He said, the Glover I have had different vehicles than the Glover she was describing. Hers was a Jamarcus Glover. Ours was like a Jerome Glover, another J Glover. So very odd. Right. Um, 
so he said, but I told her that they didn't have anything. It was the wrong person. I went, cool. I don't care. Not my case. You know, I'm, I'm doing all these warrants a week. I, I don't have time for that. So the next day I go into the office, Josh is walking by me. I said, Hey, Josh, um, I don't know if you heard, but Glover is not getting any packages at that location. His response to me was, yeah, Kelly told me and dang, I wanted to do a rip or a reversal on these packages. Now I've got to write all these warrants. And I said, sorry, man, that was our conversation. That's the extent I had in this thing. So then when I read the indictments that he and Kelly, so Kelly got in trouble with another case. They, her and two other uh, detectives um, were caught throwing slushies on homeless people, which is deplorable. It's horrible. Exactly. Yes. And they were recording these and laughing about it. So the feds took that case. The two other guys have already been indicted on it. She didn't get indicted, oddly enough. And I was sitting back thinking, why didn't she get indicted? They did. They got it on video. Right. And what happened was she took a proffer and she spoke not only on the slushy, they called it slushy gate, on slushy gate, but she also gave a, a proffer on this case as well, admitting that her and Josh left the, the line in there saying the postal inspector um, said that there were packages there and that they got together and decided they were going to say, I'm the one that told them that. And so mm. I was taken aback. I was like, are you kidding me? I already took one bullet for you guys on this on this case that now I'm finding out we should have never even have been there. Right. So I'm trying to wait for it to come out before I get too upset or too whatever, but you don't go in and tell the FBI and the DOJ that you did something you didn't do. And right. so I'm pretty sure that's the, 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 what took place. It's disheartening. It's discouraging because I've always taken care of people that I work with or that work for me. And all I did was try to help them that night. And then because they were under fire and made a mistake or, an, or a screw up or a crime, then, you know, they were looking for somebody else to blame. And it sounds like the sergeant in that unit, I don't know the details on that one, but it sounds like he's another one's getting thrown under the bus. Um, I think they're trying to get him on some stupid stuff and, and just tie him in with the group. Again, time will tell, but um, I mean, for all you cops listening, the DOJ will not give you any favors. Matter of fact, you know, they will they will come at you even harder than they do other people. So uh, just be aware and, and do the right thing. It's not that hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not that hard. And and you know, it it when I when I you know, I was reading as much as I could about uh what the charges the DOJ was bringing and I was seeing, you know, the the accusations of the false statement that was put in the search warrant and everything. And I was just thinking to myself, man, I I mean, I don't know probably enough about the case, but it seems like you know, the fact of how tied in Brianna was, I guess, I guess they kind of needed that to tie Jamarcus Glover to, to the address, that one little piece. Um, and, but and they didn't need that. They have photos of him going in empty handed and coming oh, out okay. packages. Yeah. So they had it. They, right. they, I, that line was unnecessary. All they had to say was we saw him go in empty handed, come out with a package. They had a, a ping on his phone, a tracker on his car. He took that package, went straight to the trap house. That's all they had to say. And that's indicative of drug trafficking through my experience. Right. It's pretty simple. But right. they didn't do that. They chose to try to make it sound better than it was. And, and I don't know the reason why. You know, right. I defended him for months and or years, actually. And I said, man, I, I think it was an honest mistake because it, it is true when we do these warrants for months, you frame these warrants and you put stuff in as you get it in chronological order. 
Right. And I thought, well, maybe he misunderstood. Or when that first text came through and they said, we think we've got a Glover, maybe they went ahead and plugged that in then and they just forgot to take it out. Um, but it looks like that wasn't the case now. And and so, I mean, I got a little egg on my face from trying to defend him for so long. But then right. at the same time, I'm trying to get this knife out of my back. So it's just right. a weird, weird position to be in. Yeah. So, so, and maybe you can't answer this. Have you had conversations then with, with the feds about this? And um, the ongoing investigation they were doing now that they dropped charges or? Yeah. So I had to testify in the grand jury as to my involvement in it. Um, you know, I know how the DOJ and the feds play. And I was like, I'm not talking to you. You know, if I do, I'm going to plead the fifth, not because I'm guilty of anything, but I know how easily if you give a statement in one, in one instance and you give another statement in another instance, and it's just a little bit off, they'll get you flying to the FBI. And so right. I was like, you know, I'm not even taking that chance. So they gave me a forcible order to talk by a judge. Um, so I had to go in the grand jury and talk and, and I told him exactly what I just told you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you know, talking to me about it. Um, I'm sure it's not easy to talk about. These are, these are guys, you know, um, and guys that you work with. Um, and it sounds like, you know, maybe they messed up. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they didn't, you know, it'll, it'll go to a, go to a trial and, and we'll see what, happens. I think the one that bothers me the most is, is, uh, Hankinson, you know, why, why did we have to charge him again when, when he was already found not guilty? Um, that one bothered me, uh, knowing, knowing what I do know about the case. Um, and, uh, but, but I was also, uh, thankful to see, um, you know, see that you, you came out of it unscathed because talking to you and, and knowing what I do know about the case, you, you were, you did nothing wrong. You were serving a warrant. You had you had good faith that it was a, a good warrant, a solid warrant, and you're helping another unit out. And and now and now you're years later, um, over two two years later, you're still dealing with the fallout from it. So um, I yeah, you'd be surprised story. how many even. So I travel a little bit and speak places, and and you'd be surprised how many even cops still think that we number one did a no knock warrant, which we didn't. They think right. she was asleep in her bed, which she wasn't. Right. All these facts that that is still floating out there. Um, and that was the reason for the book. You know, it wasn't a woe is me. I, I'm fine. I'm good. It was a, hey, this is what you're hearing. And so I'm not the only one. You know, since I've been doing this, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me and said, man, I've been railroaded by my city. And here's the story. And your jaw just drops. And you're like, I can't believe this is an epidemic in the police world that these cities and these departments are just betraying the guys that they asked to do the job. You trained me this way. You asked me to go to this location. When I did what you asked me to do, then you hang me out to dry. And it's just amazing and, and, and very heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think when you start lining up all, all the lies and the narrative that was uh, really pushed when this happened, it, it's just incredible. Like I have them written down here that you were at the wrong address, that Brianna was asleep in her bed, that she was a decorated EMT, that you did a no-knock warrant, no announcements, that you were there to rob her, that you weren't in police gear, um, that, you know, yes. I, I still believe Walker knew exactly um, that you guys were PD, but that, you know, he didn't know you were PD, that um, the warrant that you were there to get, which you weren't there to get, you were there to get evidence, you weren't there to take anyone into custody, but that everyone was already in custody, you had no reason to be there. Um, all those things that that is just what was put out and pushed and pushed and pushed and and your department did nothing to correct it no and and i've told people i understand the public's disdain and and anger about this 
Because if I didn't know the case, right, and I'm sitting back and I hear all these lies, and the people who should be defending you don't, they don't say a word. They just let those lies perpetuate and keep going and building and, and adding more legs like we were there to rob them. Uh, one, per, one of the attorneys even said there was a gas can in one of the pictures that we brought it. And we were going to catch the apartment on fire afterwards. I mean, crazy stuff. And people believed it. And then not only that, before the, the criminal case is settled, the city settles with them for $12 million. Well, heck yeah, we look guilty. Right. We look guilty of sin, and there's nobody. And we had gag orders on us, so we couldn't stand up and go, "Whoa, red flag!" Nope, that's not what happened. It, it, it's not what happened. But now it's been going on for so long that people are like, "Now you're lying." There's no way, right? And I'm like, "I've got the documentation. Here it is." But nobody wants to hear it. I mean, I still get messages and threats and stuff on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all constantly of ignorant people just running their mouth, and it just amazes me. Right? Yeah. And and just to touch on the the one thing too, the reason I don't believe you know Kenneth Walker had no idea it was a police is just from my years of experience and 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 doing a a knock and announce. Um, anytime I hear someone say that they didn't know it was the police, I I think to myself that that's probably a lie because there's no way the way the police announce and knock on a search warrant and like you said that that has been proven to be true. You have witnesses that said you guys were knocking and announcing. I, I think if I'm correct, you even have a photo of, of, the, of the board in the, in the room where you guys briefed because initially it was supposed to be a no-knock warrant and they changed it and you, you actually have a picture from the briefing room uh, proving that. So it, it's correct. been proven that it was a, a knock and announce warrant and there's no way someone, for as long as you guys knocked and announced, did not know you were the police. Um, I thought one of the most interesting things in the book, and I don't know if you can talk about this at all a little more, is some of the statements Kenneth Walker made afterwards mm-hmm. and, and a phone call that he, he made to um, his mother. Um, like this, t- this stuff never came out, and it's just wild no. to me that it never came out. Can you talk about it, that? It, and it wasn't followed up on, which blows my mind too, you know, as far as in the investigation, at least that I know of. Um, so there were three phones in the apartment that night. LMPD has two of them. The FBI has the third one. The two were downloaded um, and they were the tolls were done on them as far as who they called when they talked to them. And that's the ones that show Kenneth Walker was involved in home invasions and robberies and selling uh, fentanyl pills and, and um, marijuana to, to the Hooters girls and show different guns, all that stuff. So we know what's on those two phones. FBI won't tell us what's on that third phone. They won't release it. And here was the thing that was sketchy. So there was an officer that lived in that apartment complex who was a courtesy officer. And for people that don't know that you get a discount if you do work for the apartment complex you live in and you have a marked car sitting out there. So it it increases their safety. Well, this courtesy officer went to middle school and high school with Kenneth Walker. They were still friends to this day. They talked to each other on the phone. This officer knows Kenneth Walker's mother. That's how well he knows this guy. And he doesn't like what happened. Because he's got posts in his Black Lives Matter shirt saying, we won't let this happen to our people again. He marched with Black Lives Matter in uniform. Um, he said, we hate bad cops. All these things. But he screwed up if he was trying to cover for Kenneth. Because before all the narrative came out that that um, all the stuff blew up, he had to give an interview to our public integrity unit, which was the one who initially investigated the shooting. And in that interview, 
He says, I just got home from work. I'd taken my uniform off. I heard some gunshots. I turned my radio on and I heard there was an officer down. I put my uniform back on. I came back outside. He said, then I realized it was Kenneth's house or where Kenneth was involved. He said, Kenneth's mom showed up to scene when she, she approached me because she knew who I was. I know her. He said, she came up to me and said, I don't know what's going on. Kenneth called me and said, they're at the door. I said, who's at the door, baby? He said, then she said, then he said, it's the police and hung up. Now, was that on the third phone they have that they won't release? Our attorneys right. are trying to get the tolls on Kenneth Walker's mother's phone to see the, the sequence of events of calls because the tolls on Kenneth's phone shows after the shooting, he called his mother first instead of 911. Then he called 911 six minutes later. After that, he called Brianna's mom. And at some point in that, it appears, according to the tolls, that Kenneth's mom three weighed in and they talked. So I don't know what conversations were taking place for those several minutes. Uh, right. but he didn't come out of that apartment for almost 16 or for a little over 16 minutes, claiming he didn't know it was the police. Right. So even if that call didn't take place while we were banging on the door, which I think it did, it, even if it was the first call out of the gate, he knew it was the police after the fact. But his call to 911 that stirred up the nation was, oh, somebody just kicked in the door. I don't know who it was. And they shot my girlfriend. Right. Well, this coward, number one, if you think. If you think you're getting home invaded, do you bring your girlfriend in the hall and have her stand there with you? What right. did she call 911 to get the police started? So it doesn't make any sense. And then once you shoot the police and dive out of the way, you leave her hanging there. So she gets shot. And then you don't come out and get help for her. You let her lay there and die. Not only that, when he came out, and this is on body cam, when he came out of the house, they said, who's in there? He said, my girlfriend, she's dead. And they said, who shot? He said, she did. Well, Brett had enough common sense about him or enough alertness, uh, situational awareness. He said, wait a minute, who shot? He said, she did. She was scared. So then he tried to pin the, the shooting on her. Right. So this guy's character is just, it's junk, man. It's, it's horrible. And for some reason, everybody believes every word he says and doesn't believe seven cops who have, uh, what was it, 140 years of experience there. It just makes right. no sense. Yeah. And not to mention that I, I think he's given several interviews and every uh, he has like changes and what happened. And I mean, yeah. the biggest change being that he, he claimed Brianna uh, was the one who shot uh, when, when he was. So uh, and, and yet we, we take what he says as gospel truth and uh, we chuck the officers under the bus. It, it makes zero sense to me that we don't have a level of deference for people who put on the uniform every day and go out and put themselves in these situations. Um, we give a level of deference um, and belief to, to people who are engaged in criminal activity, but um, it's just the culture we live in, I guess. Um, yeah. So the kind of like, I want to get into the fallout a little bit from this, obviously, you know, there were no charges. Uh, well, I guess there were charges brought against Walker for shooting you, but then they, they were dropped. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and he's they, they never dismissed him. They didn't only they didn't only dismiss him, they dismissed him with prejudice, so they can't go back and charge him for it. Right. So regardless of what evidence comes out um here in the future or any time, they, they can't even charge him for shooting a, a cop. You uh how long was your recovery? Uh your injuries were pretty serious. Did it did it hit the, the uh the main artery in your leg or Yeah. So it was about a five hour surgery. Um, it's about an eight or 10 inch scar on the leg uh, where they went in, took a vein out and replaced the, the femoral artery. Um, 
I messed my knee up a little bit when I stepped off the curb and shoulder when I landed. So the recovery was, you know, I pushed hard because I, I told my wife when I first woke up, I said, I'm not going out like this. I'm going to get back in shape. I'm going to go back to work. And I'm going to, the first thing I do, I'm going to go through the door. I'm not going to let this beat me. And right. she was like, no, you're not, you know, you're crazy, all this stuff. But then after all this stuff blew up, you know, it was impossible for me to to go do something like that. Um, right. So the recovery took, say, three months to where I was good enough to to do stuff, um, you know, ride a bike or or whatever. But there's still lingering effects. My leg's still numb, um, but you get kind of used to it. The knee still bothers me. It just feels like it's going to hyperextend at times. But, you know, I've been super blessed, man. It's 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 a miracle the way it turns out. Cause I met another guy through this who's down in Mississippi and similar injury, except he was shot from the back to the front. So the front to the back and it caused more nerve damage in his leg. And the, the guy's in constant pain walks with a limp will never go back to work or have the ability to, you know, uh, be, be back to full status. And so, you know, I can complain about all this, but in the end I've, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Um, I think it's an, impressive that you can even say that because in addition to the recovery physically um you you and your family continued to face um you know blm doxings threats uh to your to your safety um i know just talking to you offline just even within the past couple months you uh a member of your family has has received threats um what where do those investigations stand and why is the FBI doing nothing about those? So when the first major threats came out, um, you know, originally we thought, well, good, this thing's going to kind of fly under the radar because March 13th, when this took place, and that was a Friday and it was a full moon. So all the stars aligned. But that's the same day that the federal government shut down because of COVID. So the, the president was on every night. The, the mayor, the governor was on. And I thought, well, good, maybe maybe we'll kind of slide under the radar and this will go away. Not because we did anything wrong, but because ever since Michael Brown, uh, you know as well as I do, the, every time there's an officer-involved shooting, the first question you ask was, was the suspect black or white? Not not was it a good shoot or bad shoot? And that's right. all that should matter. But we go, that there's that little inference in there where we go, oh, man, you hold your breath for a minute. And you go white and you go, oh, good. And that, that's just dumb. We even have to do that. But that's right. where we're at. And so I thought, man, maybe maybe we just kind of we'll get on with our life and I'll go back to work and things will be somewhat normal. Well, then Ahmaud Arbery happened. Ben Crump got on that case. Um, the one of the attorneys that was a civil attorney for Brianna's mom uh, when she was in law school actually worked for Ben Crump one of the summers for one of her internships. So she knew him. She reached out to him and said, hey, this case is not getting enough national attention. Can you help us? Well, the dollar signs went off and sure. You know, I'll take care of it. And he did. He got a he he paired, he compared and, and made these cases similar or the same, uh, you know, as far as Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. And then George Floyd happened in May. So before George Floyd, though, everything was picking up. The threats started coming in. Um, the city was kind of getting restless. You could feel the tension building. I reached out to our city council president, who again is a retired cop who uh who trained me in the academy, trained me some of these exact things we did that night, how to do it. He trained our search warrant classes. So this is a guy that that I had taken uh, advice from. So I reached mm -hmm. out to him. I was like, hey, David, this is what, what's being said. And I laid it out. These, these are long texts. I laid it out and I said, that's what they're saying. But here's the truth. 
And I laid that out. I said, can you do something about it? Because the city and the mayor's not, and our city's going to burn if you don't, if you don't do something about it, you can feel the tension coming up. He texted me back and said, yeah, our mayor's a coward. I'll, I'll, help, I'll hold a press conference Monday and take care of it because this was on a Friday. I said, great. So I thought, man, we got some help here. Well, Monday came and went. The next week came and went. The next week came and went. Then he's on TV on these live news shows bashing us for what we did. And so I'm texting while he's on live TV going, man, you're such a coward. What is wrong with you? You know, you forgot where you came from. And his excuse was, well, I can't tell the truth because then they'll know I got it from you and that'll get you in trouble. I said, David, I don't care about me getting in trouble. I need the truth out there. But totally ignored it, totally jumped on the same narrative because he wanted to be the next mayor of Louisville. And so then after George Floyd happened, um, things just exploded and they went haywire. And our, our city did the same exact thing as everywhere else. Our very first night of riots, we had seven people shot. Um, the poor officers were just getting overrun and the city was making them stand down. It was very pathetic. And then March or May 31st came. It was a Sunday night, uh, maybe May 30th. That was a Sunday night. But into May 31st, we got a call from uh, somebody at the FBI, one of our TFOs who used to work for me, uh, his task force officer up there. And he said, hey, man, we've had credible threats come in uh, from two different sources that don't know each other. That one works for ATF, one's for our department. And you've got to get your family and get out of town because these threats are real. They're valid. And they want to have them done by her birthday, which was that next Friday. They want to have something to celebrate on their bloom release. And so I'm like, is this a movie? You know, is this is this real life? Is this taking place? So I called uh, my boss and my boss's boss. I was like, hey, where do we what do we do? You know, I don't have money. To just pack up my entire family and, and disappear. And I thought, well, at least the department might help me. Well, they offered to put us up in a hotel in the middle of downtown where the riots were going on for a week. They said, we can do that for you. And I was like, ah, screw you. No, I'll figure it out myself. So I made some calls and finally found a place that was a couple hours away from Louisville. And the, the, the family was kind enough to let us take it. It was, it was a house that they didn't use very often. And my entire family, my parents, my sisters, my, my adult children, and my grandchild, we all, we all moved. We went down there. Um, we got out of town. We were escorted by probably 15 cops because it was that serious. I mean, it was, it was, it was something out of the movies. And, um, and we get there and I'm thinking, well, good, at least the FBI has this, you know, the premier law enforcement agency in America, whether you, whether I like their politics or not, they do have the capabilities. They've got endless resources and this, these are police officers being threatened. So surely they're going to do something. So a couple of days went by the, the officer that was up in the FBI was kind of keeping me updated. He refused to tell me any Intimate details, which I respected because he said it'll mess the case up. I can't tell you anything. Just please trust me. If I can't, when it comes to that, I'll let you know. I said, I understand. I want it done right because when this goes to court, I want these people to go to prison. So a couple more days went by and he called me. He said, John, something's up, dude. He said, I, I don't know what it is. Something's fishy. I, I just got kicked out of, of the floor that they're having these meetings on. He said, the directors came down and they started talking about optics and how it looked bad going after a national victim's mother. And especially that she's black. And I said, wait a minute. Oh, whoa, whoa, optics. I said, who cares about optics? These, they're trying to kill cops because Brianna Taylor's mom was involved in a, in a black motorcycle club called no haters or straight riders. I'm sorry. And then no haters was another black club in town known for their criminal activity. And the ATF actually had an informant into that club buying illegal guns from them. And that's how that informant knew that 
these these plans were taking place. They had contacted Sin City from Chicago, one of their chapters up there. They had come down to Louisville, met with them, given a bounty on our heads, and said, "This is what we want done." And both snitches gave the same details. A guy named Slim, who's a mechanic, who's going to come in and mess with cars. One guy wanted to just take us out, you know, at a red light. Different things. I'm going right. Holy crap! Now, now the FBI is hedging on this. So they were upset that that this detective confronted one of the bosses and said, "This is bullcrap." He said, "And and I don't agree with it." So they kicked him off the floor, revoked his privileges. So about three days after that, so this is about ten days in, ten eleven days in, I get a call and said, "Hey, the guys on that floor." That were working the case are ticked off. And I said, why are they ticked off? He said, they forced them to close the case and they're not, they've been told they are not allowed to work it. And I was just mind blown because here I had a city that didn't have my back. My department didn't have my back. And now the FBI didn't have our back, not just mine, Brett and Miles also, because they were, they were getting the same threats. And so I'm thinking this, there's no way this is true. There's no way. So man, I called my attorney. We started doing open records requests. We were calling. I was calling my department. I said, I want a meeting with the FBI. They refused meetings with us. They would not talk to us. Not one time did a victim's advocate reach out to us, which is their policy. Not one time would the FBI talk to me or anybody on the case. And they kept lying to my attorney going, no, the case is open. The case is open. So a U.S. attorney got involved. And I said, I've got to know the truth. He said, well, let's sit down and have a meeting. He scheduled this meeting for uh, June 26th. And it was supposed to be like 2.30 in the afternoon. Well, about an hour before it, we get an email saying, this meeting needs to be postponed. I'm going on vacation for two weeks. Uh, we'll get together when we get back. So I fired off this nasty email going, you got to be kidding me. If this were your family, would you go, oh, when I get back from vacation, we'll talk about your life. And so I said, if they can have demands, all these protesters can have demands that you guys are caving to. Here are my demands. And I laid them out. And well, that didn't get me very far. <laughs> uh, it kind of closed <laughs> communication with this U.S. attorney because, you know, they think there's somebody. And so my attorney was like, oh, man, I used to work with him in the U.S. attorney's office. He wouldn't lie to me. I told my attorney, I said, Kent, he's lying to you, man. I've got guys on the inside telling me this case has been done for weeks. And he was like, no, there's no way. And I'm like, I'm telling you. So finally, this guy, it rolls around two weeks past. This is July 7th. He never doesn't reach out. July 14th, a week later, I reached out to my attorney and said, look, if you don't do something with this, I'm going to the media. I said, get this guy on the phone and let's talk to him. So my attorney reaches out to him again. He sends an email back with two sentences. One of them said, um, the case is closed, no charges anticipated. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. So this has been done for weeks. They lied to us repeatedly about it. They refused to talk to us. We begged for meetings. We requested meetings to my attorney, request them to my department. They wouldn't have them. They said, nope, not talking to him. Yet they met with Ben Crump. They met with our civil rights activists in Louisville. They even met with a group of teenagers who are civil rights activists in Louisville and told them about the case, but they wouldn't meet with us. And so that just shows you how political the FBI has become. And it's not all the guys. Right. I mean, I respect some of the guys. I like the guys. It's that upper command. But here's the kicker. So and you got to follow me on this one. Amy Hess was the highest ranking female official ever in the FBI. She was under Jim Comey in D.C. When she retired, she's from Louisville originally. When she retired, she came to work as our public safety director for Greg Fisher, who's our Democratic liberal mayor. Well, she's very good friends with the guy who used to be the ASAC or the, the SAC uh, over FBI Louisville who made this call. Okay. And so 
we couldn't figure it out. So I reached out to a retired FBI guy who had like 30 years in, was respected, good at his job. And he was like, John, I'm telling you, she is a Black Lives Matter apologist. She's very liberal. Her and the SAC, they go to lunch a couple of times a week. They're on the phone every day. He said, I don't know. Something's just fishy here. So we put two and two together. She's working for this liberal mayor. And I'm sure he said, hey, this can't, this got to go away. We can't have this. Right. Because he had already put her family on his stage. He had already said we needed to be fired and locked up. And we needed justice for Breonna Taylor. So he would have egg all over his face if this came out. So once that got dismissed or, or the, the case closed, this sack got promoted to her old unit in D.C. So, I, you know, okay. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I've done a few right. puzzles and they kind of link up. Right. And uh, it's just it's just bizarre how these things take place. Right. And to date, I know you that you've, um, again, reading your book, have filed at least one, if not multiple um, uh, FOIAs, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests to the FBI to try to get information about these investigations. Have, have you ever gotten any information from them? No, they told us to pound sand on the last one that they'll never give it up. Okay, And we didn't even, sure, I wanted to see why they didn't do it, which I knew, but I mainly wanted the case file so we could pass it on to another agency who was willing to work the threats. Because there's one thing to have a threat on your family. There's another thing to have that threat out there that nobody's following up on. And so when this hit was taken out on us, uh, to my knowledge, Breonna Taylor's mom didn't have a lot of money. You know, they were probably going to group group this thing together and throw it together. But now you've got $8 million from GoFundMe. You've got $12 million from a settlement. 20 million bucks is a whole lot of money to pay for a hit. And so nobody's monitoring bank accounts. Nobody's monitoring uh, phone calls. And, and so that is worse than knowing you have a hit is the fact that you don't know what's going on with it and nobody's investigating it. So that's where we stood on that. And they said, you know, quit wasting your time. We do not, uh, we do not disclose case files of people who aren't charged with a crime. Right. And so to date, you you kind of live under this canopy of concern or 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 like vigilance then because no one's really trying to figure out who are the people that are behind this and bring anyone to justice. It's just you're just kind of out there in in the wind. How do you how do you deal with that on a daily basis? Well, the first thing I did was I started putting it out there. I put it out there in the book. I put it out there in these podcasts because I thought, how am I going to play this? Right. This is a chess game. And if nobody's investigating and they think they're under the radar and can do what they want, then they may do what they want. So I said, you know what? I'm going to put it out there. I'll put my name on it. I'll sign my name to it. Here's what I know. Here's what I think. Here it is. And hopefully that will deter somebody from doing something stupid because that's fine. If you're not going to get charged, whatever, God will deal with you. But I didn't want them to think that they had free range to do what they want. Because again, the same thing came down about uh, about her mother that came down with Kenneth Walker as far as she is 100% off limits. You're not allowed to investigate anything on them. Uh, she's got free reigns. So I thought, well, at least we'll play this card and see what happens because what else do I have? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're out of options, unfortunately. Yeah, it's incredible. It's it's not a fun place to be in, but you know, at the end of the day, you trust God and just say, you know, it's in His hands, and you can't. Yeah, I could die in a car wreck. So let's just let's just keep living life. I've never lived my life scared. I'm not going to do it now. Here's the problem: 
you know, you and I are used to, we're, we're pretty calloused. 20, you got 20 years, whatever you got, I've yeah. got 21 where you're dealing with people cussing you out, threatening you, saying when they get out of prison, they're going to do this or that. And you kind of get to the point where you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, bring it on. I don't care. But your family's not, they are totally not used to this. And when they right. get these thing threats or when they hear these things and they see the details, it totally freaks them out. And as a father, that was my biggest concern. It wasn't me. I don't care. You know, when I die, I'll go to heaven. But my biggest concern was not being able to protect my children because that's what we are. We are protectors, not only as dads, but just in our life as police officers. That's what we did. And when that control is taken away from you, that's that's the most uneasy feeling in the world. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just so disheartening too. you know, you know, as as a law enforcement officer, I I, I know that at these federal agencies, specifically the FBI, there are good agents uh, working. I worked with TFOs, um, you know, task force officers. Like th- there are good people that work in these agencies. But the the upper echelon, it seems, has been infiltrated with this activist mindset that really erodes the trust of 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 the the people, the citizens, to to have them do the right thing and to look at, hey, is a law being broken and what are we going to do about it instead of worrying about the optics? And, and it's, you know, it's something that I think even later on this episode in my, in my monologue at the end, I'm going to be talking about because once, once your, your law enforcement starts engaging in, in activist things and, and uh, involved in trying to placate and appease certain people and worried about optics and not worried about what is the standard, what is the law? And and standing with those who keep the law and going against those who who break the law, man, that 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 really creates a huge problem um, in a, in our culture. It exasperates the the problem what we're looking at right now. So um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's just not a, little a, not a good time. It yeah. is. And 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 here's another development that took place. You talked about you know my family being threatened, and they have been, but uh, a substantial threat came out about I don't know three or four months ago against my daughter who owns a salon. And uh, she was sent this message that was detailed about her salon, about her, about how they were infiltrating, sending customers in there, acting as, uh, you know, people getting their hair cut. And then this is what they were planning on doing. And she needed to watch her back. And they were going to burn her place down and hurt her, all this stuff. We took that message and foolishly gave it to the FBI again. They did. Uh, it was on Facebook. So they did the, the, all the stuff they do there on the technical side, found out who the IP address was. And it was a person who was one of the main leaders in the riots in Louisville, one of the people who caused a lot of the problems. And I thought, well, at least, you know, maybe they'll do something with this since I blasted them all on all the other stuff. Right. So the agents, again, the agents on the ground did their job. They were doing great. They pinpointed the person. Uh, they went to take warrants out on them and they kept presenting it to the U.S. attorney. And the U.S. attorney kept nitpicking, going, oh, you need more here. You need more here. And they would go get more. Well, finally, he was like, look, the name on the warrants, Mattingly, we're not doing anything with it unless something happens. And I thought, oh, yes, unbelievable. And then right after that, they took that TFO who used to work for me, who, again, would let me know stuff, but didn't give me any details. He still to this day hasn't told me the name of the person who is the one that was threatening because it's unethical because he right. had sworn an oath and he was up there under, you know, all the, all the rules of the FBI. They took him and kicked him out of the FBI. Not only kicked him out, they walked up, escorted him out, wouldn't let him clean his desk out. And then when he tried to put in for other trainings, 
They blocked him and said he had threatened the FBI, which is all crazy. I mean, they are just, they're out of control is what they are. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Super disheartening. Um, and, and what's also disheartening about it is it, the, the actual incident in and of itself is a tragedy because, you know, Brianna lost her life. It's not something that you or any of the other officers wanted to happen, but it happened. It's the reality of the situation. Um, and, and it was, it was tragic for sure, but it doesn't help the situation to not, not deal with the fallout and not deal with the threats and, and try to, um, you know, create a narrative even at a law enforcement level to create a narrative about what happened, you know, during and, and after, um, you know, I, I feel like Brianna Taylor's family is owed the truth just as everyone else is owed the truth. They, they're owed oh, the absolutely. truth of what actually happened. And um, I think it was one of the, one of the things I appreciate about your book too, is you talked about that. You talked about how, you know, the, the tragedy of, of what happened, the fact that, um, you know, Brianna lost her life. You talk about how um, those things that you think could have happened that that you wish would have happened that you believe would have prevented her from from uh, dying. And you also expressed a level of just understanding to people who, you know, were out there. You know, the whole say her name mantra, um, and and the people that were upset because you understood what they were hearing about the about the situation can you talk about how you think you know the truth had the truth come out how that would have helped Brianna Taylor's family and and anything that you think could have been done differently at the time of the raid to maybe um keep this from happening yeah i think at the time of the raid had we just served this like a normal search warrant you know given the the reasonable amount of time like the supreme court says and gone and done what we always do now, i've been shot at during search warrants I've been shot out on the street, but, you know, thank God I was never hit. But every time that something like that happens, it seems like we did something that we normally didn't do, something that somebody else suggested. And you're like, eh, I don't know if I really like that, but okay, I'll go along with it. And things just never seem to turn out right. And that's what happened here. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't fancy on giving them that much time to come to the door. I don't care who it is. You just don't know what's on the other side. And and nothing's routine. You know, you hear routine traffic stop. All that's bull. Nothing is routine. And right. had we just done a normal warrant, I think the psychological advantage you get by doing that and the overwhelmingness of multiple people, you know, being loud, uh, coming in forceful prevents a lot of people. Because I can't tell you how many people over the course of my career, we're, we're getting ready to serve these warrants. And the intel says, this guy says, I'm not going back to prison alive. I'm going to shoot out with the police. Well, you know, you're you're on on edge on those and you're like, OK, here we go. You know what happens, happens. But at the same time, this should have been no different. We should have just hit the door like we normally did. And I think Brianna would have been alive. And uh, the tragedy to that is that a mom did lose her daughter. A sister did lose her sister. Friends lost a friend. And nobody wanted that because when I woke up in the hospital bed, I didn't know if anybody else had been shot. I knew I'd been shot, but I had no idea inside the house. And I looked at my wife and I said, was anybody else hit? And she was like. Yeah. And I said, who? And she said, a female got shot and she died. Well, I knew the female didn't have the gun. At least I never got to her. I knew the taller subject, who I assumed was a man, had the gun. So in my heart, man, it just sank and I got a pit in my stomach because my biggest fear of my entire career was I don't want to shoot the wrong person. 
I don't want to shoot right. an innocent bystander. I don't want, you know, our job is to protect and serve and preserve life, not take it unless we have to. So the tragedy of it was just, over, you know, it was overwhelming. And I hated it for that. I hated it for the community. Um, but then because of all the mistruths and, and the lack of pushback, I understood why people were upset. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and kind of wrapping up here, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, in conversations offline and, and in your book, one thing I really appreciate about your book is, is basically, you know, at the end, um, you know, you, you, you share about your faith, you share about the gospel. Can you talk about your faith and, and the role that that's played in your career? Um, and, and especially during um, the, the aftermath of, of the whole Brianna Taylor raid? Yeah. And I, I tell people this, I say, you know, I'm a Christian. That's my foundation. I'm not always a good Christian, um, but I know where, where I belong, you know, in this pecking order of life, I know God's at the top, then your family, then, then, you know, you have to have that testimony or you try to at least treat people right, help them down the path to, to see the gospel. And in my career, I think the main thing that's helped me with is having some compassion um, and understanding that, you know, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. So give people a little bit mercy, treat them with kindness and respect. And that's all, it's always been my motto because the biggest thing that frustrated me on the street and aggravated me more than anything else wasn't the bad guys, wasn't the way they talked to us. It was the way other cops talked to the other, to, to the citizens that used to tick me off to no end when, when for no reason, these guys would just come up with attitude and just talk down to people and I, you know, some sometime I'd pull them aside, or if I didn't know them, I would just be like, "Unbelievable! Why are we not teaching more of this in the academy on how to talk to people and how to treat them right?" Because that goes a long way. And and fortunately, over the course of my career, I treated people that way. Or you would have a bunch of people coming out against me, going, "Yeah, I remember when Officer Mattingly treated me this way, or when he told me this, or when he threatened me here." But you don't have that because it didn't take place. And so I think that was that was something that I leaned on. But mainly when I went through this ordeal. Sure, there's been plenty of times I've been overwhelmed or I've been frustrated or angry, and uh, I've done my best not to be bitter because I know that doesn't do any good. But the main thing is when the low gets too heavy, I've always just finally come to terms and gone, okay, God, you've got to take this low because I can't do it. You know, I can't keep going unless you help me. And it's at those times that you always get some type of peace and you get a just a kind of a relief and that low gets lifted a little bit. It's not always gone. Uh, because I think we're we're made to carry some loads, so we have to keep dependent on God. But uh, again, I'm not a great Christian, but I know that God saved me. I know that He forgives, and I know that you know that's where the source of that our country needs to get back to, so we have some type of moral compass. Yeah, and I I really appreciate you know again offline when we were getting ready to do uh, have this conversation, you you made the statement, um, and one of the things you wrote to me, you know that you placed your burdens on him and he didn't fail. And I think yep. that is, is so key. You know, you know, I know there's a lot of police officers that listen to this, that, that don't have a faith that, that don't, uh, you know, believe what you believe or what I believe. Um, but ultimately, um, I, I don't, I don't know how you go throughout this, through this life without having, uh, that, that faith in God and that ability to understand who Christ is and what he's done for us. And the fact that, you know, he empathizes with us, you know, the word says that he, he empathizes with us. He understands, um, what we've gone through. He's been through, um, uh, all of it. He, he, he lived on this earth, fully man, fully God. 
and and he can empathize with with the things we're going through. And I just thought that was a really uh, powerful thing that you had said that you know when you place your burdens on him, he, he hasn't failed you, and I appreciated sure. that. Um, well, John, I just I, I really appreciate you coming on and and just uh, wanted to give you the the final word here. I want to I want to plug your book again real quick. If if anyone out there hasn't read uh, Twelve Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Breeder on a Taylor raid, highly recommend it. Um, it, it's a really eye-opening firsthand account of the raid um, that led to the tragic death of Breonna Taylor, and and uh, led to you know John Manley being being shot as he's as he's described to you here on this episode, um, and and just some of the politics and the fallout and the and the lies that were told afterwards. Um, but I I always like to give my guests the final word. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, just a, your chance to to have the mic, speak freely, and just just talk um, to or about whatever you want to talk. Uh, retired Sergeant John Mattingly, final word. Yeah. So the book. Let me let me touch on that real quick because the book wasn't written for me. It was written for the cops that are still on the street, holding the line, standing in the gap. It's for the public so they can look and say, if we don't start rallying around our police officers and supporting them, we're going to lose all the good ones. And then we're all going to be up a creek. So I want to encourage the guys who are still out there, man, just keep doing the right thing. It pays off in the end. It doesn't feel like it. Sometimes you're you're depressed or you're, you know, overwhelmed. But don't be scared to get that help because we have a stigma in law enforcement. And last year we had twice as many officers commit suicide that died in the line of duty. And last year there was a lot of cops that died in the line of duty because of COVID. So that tells you how many more uh, guys aren't getting the help they need. We're macho, we're tough, we're all these things, but we've got to protect our brains just like we protect our bodies. And so that's my last word of encouragement. If you're an officer out there, or if you're just a citizen, just take care of yourself mentally, take care of yourself physically and depend on God and and things always seem to work out the way they're supposed to. Thanks, John. I appreciate you coming on. Before I get into the rest of the episode, I wanted to urge you to check out the podcast website at www.diakonosacc.com. On there, you can find the podcast mission, some bio and contact information on me, a link to listen to episodes and information on how you can support this podcast. The next episode is a low expectations episode. I believe it's low expectations take seven, and that is coming to you on the very first Tuesday of September. As usual, as we always do on those shows, Uh, Gary and I will be breaking down some current events, talking about robbers in Brazil getting absolutely lit up by civilians and probably arguing about something, I'm sure. So make sure you catch that episode again the first Tuesday of September. Listen, it was a pleasure to have retired Sergeant John Manley on this show. I think one of the most troubling aspects about his story is that John is like thousands upon thousands of other cops who at any moment and in the course of their duties can not only possibly lose their life like he nearly did, but can also lose everything else, their peace, their safety, their reputation, their employment, for simply doing something they've done many times before, but that in that moment ends with tragic results. When this story first hit the news back in 2020, many people immediately decided that he and his fellow officers were racist murderers. And just as he stated, it is somewhat understandable The narrative we have been fed about this incident is full of, at best, mistaken facts and, at worst, outright lies. 
There was absolutely no correction of facts by the Louisville Metro PD or the city government, but instead deafening silence. And at times, they even joined in on the demonizing of their own officers. Then those in Hollywood and sports stars started weighing in and spreading the lies as told by the press and all the vultures who were trying to make money off this story. As a police officer, I immediately started to dig for some more information on it right after it happened. Why? Because I've been an officer in a stack of guys going through a door to serve a warrant. I've been to the detailed briefings. I've seen the amount of paperwork completed for an investigation like this and the amount of probable cause you need in a warrant to have a judge sign it. I also know that once you hit that door, all bets are off. You can't call a mulligan and start over. You aren't graded on a curve. You make decisions in seconds under stress, and that's even when everything goes right. And honestly, when it goes wrong, the stress and the stakes go through the roof. And quite frankly, that's what any good police officer signs up for. They agree to take on the liability. But what they don't sign up for is to be demonized for doing their jobs, especially by their own agency or other agencies that come in to investigate. So yeah, I can't blame people for being bamboozled by the media and believing that what they are hearing is the truth. I can kind of understand that. However, I do take issue with those that assign motives to cops who decide that they know the hearts and minds of a cop based purely on skin color. It is disgusting to me. And in this incident, it happened quickly and without any critical thinking or ability to stand back, take a second, and ask some questions. If you've noticed, until this episode, I never spoke about the Breonna Taylor raid, mainly because I didn't believe I had a full picture of what had gone on or all the details. I knew that certain aspects, as reported by the press, were outright untrue, but I still wanted to get a clearer picture of what had happened. So when I read John's book, I was amazed at the amount of information never told and never shared with the public. This is documented information and facts about the case that Louisville PD literally never brought to the public. Officers with years and years of experience who served the community and served on that department were completely hung out to dry because the optics and the pressure were so great that the leadership folded at the highest levels. Shameful. Now, if the officers charged federally are found guilty of actually lying on the search warrant, absolutely hold them accountable. I have no time for that. And if a jury hears all the evidence and, conv and convicts, so be it. I won't doubt the work of that jury. That's unacceptable, especially since it appears they even had enough to hit the door without lying. But those officers that actually hit the door with John were doing so in good faith. And in that moment, as they stacked on the door and knocked and announced and made entry and were fired upon, in that moment, they were doing nothing wrong. They were doing their job and they were met by a criminal with a gun who shot and nearly killed one of them. And in that moment, the color of skin of all parties involved meant nothing. Survival was the only mission and tragically, a woman, a woman who had made poor decisions in her life, tragically died. And she didn't deserve to die. And a family lost a daughter and a sister. And instead of pointing a finger directly at Jamarcus Glover, the main target in this mess, who shouldn't even be out of jail at that time, and instead of pointing a finger at Kenneth Walker, another criminal, who shot at the police, many turned on the officers knowing nothing about these officers, who they were, what they believed, how they grew up, or where they came from. 
but deciding that because of the skin colors of all involved, they, the police, were racist murders. It's reprehensible to draw those conclusions. And so what should we consider during these types of incidents? Well, I think there are several things, and this is an, an all-inclusive list, but patience to wait for all the facts, a quickness to ask questions, and a slowness to draw conclusions, humility, content of character of all involved, and do I have evidence to support my accusations about the character of all involved? I think some specific questions that I like to ask myself and I encourage other people to ask is how long ago did this incident take place and is that enough time to get a true, clear picture of all the facts? Who is giving me the information right now and how did they get it? What do I know about the officers and their past conduct? If I knew an officer who was involved, would I immediately draw the same conclusions I am about the officers I don't know in this specific incident? That's a big one. Many people know police officers. And many people who demonized officers in this raid, in the Breonna Taylor raid that I know, I wonder, if I was in that raid, would they be drawing the same conclusions? Since the race alone of those involved is not evidence, it isn't, it is not evidence, do I have evidence that race played a part? Another excellent question. What would have I done or how would have I reacted in the same situation if I was being shot at? If I was an officer involved, what would I want people to know before conclusions were drawn? What do I know about the subjects involved and the activities they were involved in? Who pushed the violence? Who pushed the action? And who was forced to react in the situation? Why were the police even there? What, if any lies, continue to be spread even when disproven? And who's spreading them? Important questions to ask in these incidents. And many in our culture simply do not. They demonize, they name call with little to no information. And it's disgusting to me. This segues me directly into the So Woke It's Broke segment. Because as I look at this case, I have to take a step back and ask myself, why does it appear that some law enforcement agencies are taking an activist mentality? If the pursuit is after those that break the law and getting justice, why is only one side being pursued? If the officers who prepared this warrant lied on it, pursue them to the fullest. I'm in favor of that. But why is the same pursuit not given to those who continue to threaten death and harm on members of Maddie Lane's family? It's simple. It's optics and politics, culture and pressure. But they should have nothing to do with the pursuit of justice. But more and more, it seems that these types of things are dictating the actions and missions of law enforcement agencies. Case in point are these recent stories in the news. In an article from Police One in July, it was reported that the San Diego Police Department reached an agreement with the city's Pride Parade organizers to march in the parade in uniform. Ultimately, this ended a two-year ban on officers marching in uniform in the Pride Parade. It, this article included photos of fully uniformed officers marching in the 2019 parade 
and holding a sign that read, quote, the San Diego Police Department supports the LGBTQI plus community. We stand with you, end quote. Now, anyone who has listened to this podcast knows my feelings on sexual sin. As a Christian, I believe the Bible and the word of God is clear that any sexual relationships outside of a marriage between one man and one woman is a sin. But I'm not talking about my personal feelings on the matter when I ask why are the police involved in, quote, standing with and promoting this agenda? And where does the, quote, standing with end? If an abolished abortion group wanted to march, a group who believed that abortion was in fact the murder of a human being created by God, if a group like that came into San Diego, would that police department meet with that group and work to allow officers to march with that group holding a, quote, we stand with you banner? I highly doubt it. The only people the police should be standing with are those that keep the law, that keep the standard. They should work the parade. They should work any parade to protect those involved and keep the peace, to hold the standard of law. And that should be for any group and any parade, regardless of what they are promoting. The police officers should be there to hold the law, to hold the standard, to hold the line. But they should not be participating in it. The police officer's role is not to praise and push and participate in certain agendas. Their role is to praise those that keep the law, to push the standard of the law, and to participate in arresting those that break the law. To add to this is the fact that during Pride events in 2022, there were multiple reports of grown men and women partially naked to fully naked in front of children at certain events. To my knowledge, no arrests were made in these incidents, even though in different circumstances, these types of acts would have been considered criminal in nature requiring arrests. One such event occurred in Seattle where, during the Pride Parade, which was led by a group of Boy Scouts, fully naked adults rode bicycles in front of children and families. Just fine. No arrests made. Police look the other way. But contrast that with the arrest of Matt Meineke, a Seattle street preacher who was arrested during the Seattle Pride event. The same Pride event where some of these naked adults were around kids and families. This is not an issue of whether or not I agree with Meineke's style or delivery, because that's not the point. Preaching on a public sidewalk, he was consistently cursed at, had liquids poured on him, mocked, and even had multiple Bibles stolen and either ripped up or thrown into portable toilets that were at the event. However, even though under Washington law, it appears that these actions do constitute an actual hate crime, no one was arrested for them. Instead, Meineke was arrested after the police told him to move because the risk he opposed to public safety. I'm sorry, I don't believe he posed the risk. The risk was posed by those going apoplectic over his mere existence and attempts to talk about sin and read the Bible. I've not found anything to suggest that Meineke hates the police. In fact, he stated that he loves the police and he has no problem with them, but also stated they are fallible and worthy of criticism when they overstep. I agree. And here's the point. Our culture wants the police to take on an activist mentality, but only in one direction. And this is super dangerous, because if our culture decides who the police can support and who they can't, then we are only steps from our culture demanding they silence certain people. And if our culture decides who the police can police, 
Well, then the police aren't constrained by the law, but controlled by whoever can ascertain the most power. Controlled by the mob. The law must constrain and direct the police. Not politics, not social justice agendas, not movements. And for sure, we should have a discussion. Uh, We absolutely should have a discussion about the laws that are on the books. Are they moral? Are they right? Are they constitutional, etc.? That discussion and debate should never stop. There are many laws I enforce every day that are moral laws based on biblical standards that go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. But I've also, even on this podcast, questioned laws enforced that overstep government's authority and move into areas where I don't believe they have authority. I think we saw that and continue to see some of that during all this COVID stuff. And perhaps you're listening to me and saying to yourself, well, what about Jim Crow law and the police engaging in that? And to that, I would say it was a completely terrible and unjust thing for the police to be involved in. But it also proves my point that it was wrong then, just as activism now within law enforcement is also wrong. But in our so woke it's broke culture, some police agencies are moving away from the ideal that justice is blind, that it has no favorites and no agenda, that it doesn't attempt to appease or affirm, that it doesn't fold under pressure. I first began to notice it in 2020 during the protests and riots where police across the country were told to stand down as crime literally exploded in front of them. By and large, law enforcement in the country folded. We decided optics was more important than upholding the law. Law enforcement decided to get into bed with activists and social justice warriors and attempt to appease them. It didn't happen overnight, but for years, leaders have begun to slowly redefine what it is that the police do. Instead of doing our jobs, we began to focus on everyone liking us. That bus is gaining steam, and more and more police agencies are getting on it. As they clamor to gain the affirmation of people, they are eroding the base of what grows the faith of the public in them. What is that base? It's the law. The law doesn't play favorites. It has no agenda. It is simply a standard, a standard to either be followed or broken. It caused me so much grief in 2020 to be part of an agency that allowed people to commit criminal acts at will and do nothing while citizens, trying to sleep and do life, called us and begged us to put an end to it. And it caused me even more grief to know that if the group committing the criminal acts were on the other side politically or held conservative values, we would have been told to do our job. Why would it have been right to uphold the law with one group and not the other? Simply put, optics and pressure, not right versus wrong, not legal versus illegal, but optics and pressure. And when law enforcement is afraid of optics and pressure, they begin to be controlled by the mob instead of the standard of law and order. If you're in law enforcement, do a self-analysis. What is your standard? What is your line? I hate to say it, but we need to think about these things. If you're a leader in law enforcement, you better check your guts. Because the higher you go in the agency, the more guts you're going to need to stand up for what's right. If you're a citizen, demand that your police department do their jobs. Especially if they are too busy playing patty cake with social justice warriors and playing favorites with certain groups to win social woke points. And with that, it's time to move to a story of a true warrior officer. If you're a fan of the show, you know on every episode we do a cue the dip segment. And that comes from diakonos. Diakonos is Greek for servant, as found in Romans 13. 
One of the root words that make up the word diakonos means to kick up the dust in pursuit. In each episode, I seek to highlight officers who in the course of their duties kick up the dust in pursuit of the mission of law enforcement, or as we like to say, cue the dip. The highlighted officer in this cue the dip segment is Officer Ronald Cronin, a 15-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department who engaged with an active shooter at the Dallas Love Field Airport. Here's what happened. On July 25th at nearly 11 a.m., suspect entered the ticket area of the airport. She began to ramble, produced a gun, pointed it at the ceiling before firing rounds into the ceiling. Prior to her even producing the gun, Officer Cronin had already begun to approach her due to her actions and activity. After firing the rounds into the ceiling, the suspect pointed her gun at Officer Cronin and a civilian and at some point fired a round at Officer Cronin. Officer Cronin engaged the suspect, shooting her and causing her to fall to the ground and drop her gun. She is charged with aggravated assault on a public servant, but could also face federal charges since it happened at an airport. Here is the news report about the incident from WFAA ABC Channel 8 out of Dallas. It looks like routine at Dallas Love Field Airport. An Uber driver in the red car drops off Portia Odafua. Several surveillance cameras show her every move. The 37-year-old woman walks in the airport straight to the bathroom. Five minutes later, she comes out with her hood over her head, going to the Southwest ticket counter. Witnesses say Udafua started, started to ramble, talking about a marriage, incarceration, and that she was going to blow up the airport and then pulls a handgun from her sweatshirt. In a lobby full of people, Udafua puts her gun toward the ceiling. Dallas police say she fired multiple rounds. People scatter, run, and duck, crawling for cover. Dallas police officer Ronald Cronin was already approaching her before she pulled out the gun. Police say she shot toward him and a bystander. But within seconds, he found cover and fired back, shooting the suspect several times. It happened so incredibly quickly. The video shows Odafua falling to the ground. Officer Cronin calls for backup and gets passengers behind him to safety. I know his actions saved lives and permitted more injuries. From his body camera, officers are seen putting the suspect in handcuffs. Are you with me? Can you hear me? Sorry, I got evidence coming, okay? What is your name? Police say Odafua was taken to the hospital where she had surgery and is stable. As for the gun she had. She was prohibited and, and got a firearm from somebody. DPD and the FBI are both investigating, understanding her criminal history, which includes a bank robbery and arson. They say Officer Cronin's actions saved lives that day. If it was appropriate, I would have given that officer a medal right here in front of you all today. I'm sure that time will come. In Dallas, I'm Tiffany Liu. Several things I'd like to point out. I don't know Officer Cronin, but it appears that he's a good officer with good police instincts. Reports about this incident suggest he began to move toward her due to her appearance. Uh, Her hood being up, hands shoved in a sweatshirt, out of place for sure in an airport in Dallas in July. uh, Where everyone else is in short sleeves. So just really solid police work uh, that he he did in that moment. The suspect's past criminal uh, mental health history leaves a lot of questions. In 2020, she was detained Uh, at Love Field Airport and transported for mental health evaluation. She's tried to buy a gun two times in Texas since 2016, but rejected, but was rejected due to outstanding traffic warrants in New Mexico. In 2019, she was charged with bank robbery. 
Those charges were then dropped the same day mental health competency evaluation was completed. Of note, uh, when police attempted to arrest her for this robbery, she ran. Can I just say, if you run after committing a crime, it is a sign, a very important sign, that you know what you did was wrong. In 2019, she was also arrested for arson, for lighting a house on fire. At that scene, when she was confronted and arrested for the arson, as she stood outside the burning house, she told the officer she was a prophet of God. She was the cause of the fire and that she needed an attorney. Her mental health so challenged that she robs a bank and lights a house on fire, but cognizant enough to understand what she has done is wrong. So she runs from the police and she also requests an attorney. Hmm, makes you think. In 2021, she was court ordered to outpatient therapy after she was found incompetent to stand trial on filing a false report. And when she didn't successfully complete that therapy, she was released to, quote, fully engage, end quote, in services at a different mental health provider. This case raises some serious questions. Are we properly vetting those that need mental health services versus straight up criminals? And if we believe the need for mental health services is so high, why do we continue to fail miserably at meeting those needs and then blame the police for doing what needs to be done? Lastly, is there a need for mental health lockups for people who literally can't function in society? I don't have the answers to all these questions, but we can't be mad at the police when they are dealing with this stuff every single day. Bottom line is, regardless of the suspect's mental health, Officer Ronald Cronin did what he had to do. There was no time to de-escalate or talk. This was a time for action, and Officer Cronin acted with great bravery to protect the many innocent people around him. And for that, he is this episode's cue the dip standout officer. Lastly, but definitely not least, I want to highlight something retired Sergeant John Mattingly and I talked about in our conversation. That being how we can place our burdens on God the Father and he won't fail us. In Deuteronomy 31.8, this is the word that God gave to Moses and Joshua and all of Israel. It says, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. I think about this verse often. Perhaps I've even shared it on this podcast. I don't remember. I've actually memorized it. I love the mental picture of God going ahead of me and also being with me at the same time. It is a verse that comforts me often. It was the word of God for his chosen people, and it continues to be a verse for his chosen people. This word, this verse was given to Moses and Joshua, the chosen and righteous leaders of Israel. This word from God was shared in front of all the people of Israel, the chosen people of God. It is a promise for God's people. It is not a promise for all people. If you are not a Christian, you can like this verse, but it isn't a promise for you. Romans 5.10 refers to those who don't believe as enemies of God. And an enemy of God can't claim his promises. For sure, God displays his common grace every day for he is patient. Even with his enemies, he allows them to breathe and wake up and go about their days unharmed. But his promises are not for them, and they are not for you if you don't know him. But what I love about Romans 5.10 is that it doesn't focus on how we are God's enemies, but focuses on how we can be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. It focuses on the fact that while we are his enemies, there is hope for us in Jesus. That while we are his enemies, we are reconciled through the death of Jesus and saved by his resurrection 
from death. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so we can lift our eyes to the top of Romans 5 and read, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We can have peace with God and we can stand firm on his promises. The promise of Deuteronomy 31.8, that he will go ahead of me and be with me, that he won't fail me or forsake me, that I don't have to fear or be dismayed about anything. We can stand firm on his promise in Hebrews 4.15-16, that we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses, and whom we can draw near to receive mercy and find grace in our times of need. We can stand firm on his promise in John 16:33 that even though we will have tribulation as believers in this world, we can have peace in him and that we can take courage because he has overcome the world. Over and over again, God's word is a lamp to light our way. It is conviction and encouragement. It speaks life to those who believe and brings death on those who don't. And on all of its pages, on all of the Bible's pages, lies a cry and a call to confess and believe. Letters in black and white that point to Jesus, the only one by which we can be saved. If you don't know him, you can. He is the one that came to this earth as a baby, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect sinless life, and yet he died on a cross for our sins taking the full wrath of God on himself in our place. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's only through him that we can come to God the Father and be adopted into his family as sons and daughters. At this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, but he will come again to judge the living and the dead. If you don't know him, I pray that you make that decision right now. Kick up the dust in pursuit of true hope, peace, and eternal life.